get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. These last three weeks, if you don't believe in the St. Louis Blues, then you haven't been watching hockey. Um, last game after the telecast, we, you know, I, I, you would not be surprised if they're in the finals. Like, they, I, I, they're one of my preseason picks to get to the finals. There's about three other teams because they're built. I think Doug Armstrong is a terrific GM, and he's come up with some really good trades, and he's very patient. Um, and I still think he's got something up his sleeve. I think maybe a defenseman at a trade deadline is something that they might look at. I'm not quite sure. But uh, they're definitely built for a seven-game series against anybody in the league. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We are broadcasting live from the ENB Granite Studio at the Centene Community Ice Center. And because there's a whole lot of pessimism, a whole lot of negativity out there in the world right now, Tanner. we decided to start with the, some optimism, specifically for your St. Louis Blues. Alex, they've got a fun weekend ahead. You've got a du- basically a doubleheader back-to-back on Saturday and Sunday at New York for the Islanders, an early one tomorrow morning. And then on Sunday, early afternoon, noon slate for that one against New Jersey. Should be a couple of fun games for the Blues this weekend. I wanted to talk about where they stand right now in the Western Conference. Because as of today, they have the third best points percentage in the West. Now, it is real close between them and Calgary. Calgary is 32-14-7 and seven on the season. The Blues are 32-15-6. and six. The only difference is Calgary lost one game in overtime that the Blues lost in regulation. They are neck and neck. But when you look below them, I'm starting to think that this Blues team is pulling away from the West, rest of the Western Conference. And last night, I thought, was an example of that. Alex, I've been doing some scoreboard watching in the NHL of late. Well, that's a little early to do some scoreboard watching. It might be, like but it. you know what? I'm all in on the Blues because we don't have the Cardinals, so this is all I've got what in my life right now. you wouldn't be all in on the Blues if we had the Cardinals right now? Yeah, that's I'm, what saying I'm saying my attention yeah. might be a little more divided. Wow. I'll, I'll be honest that with you. That is just disrespectful from both of you. Can we hone in on Vegas? Because I think they might be a cautionary tale in my mind. Last night, they lost against the uh, the Boston Bruins. They were at home, lost that game 5-2. to two. This has been a little bit of a theme for them, man. They have lost six of their last eight games. That includes shutout losses against the quality opponents on their schedule, like Calgary and Colorado. They also lost against Arizona, who, by the way, beat Colorado last night, which yeah. was interesting to they see. Beat them, yeah. I think the last two times they played against each other. Sucks to suck, Colorado. <laughs> 
hey, man, we did it to Arizona. We did it to the Devils. We well, did it well, to Montreal. Well, well, Easy well. there, Tebow. Mr. Pessimistic, you don't have to bring up all the negative <laughs> things that happened in the season. It's all right. Calgary lost to Montreal. The reason yeah. why I find Vegas to be interesting, anytime there is a star that is available, every single time, the Vegas Golden Knights have been connected to that star. And a lot of the times, they find a way to make it happen, man. The team that we saw that they became in their inaugural season in the in the NHL, they no longer are that team. Now, that doesn't mean they're bad. They're not. They're a, they're a pretty good hockey team. As of today, though, they would be out of the playoffs based on points percentage in the Western Conference. They basically have the same record this year as Edmonton, and we've talked all year about how Edmonton's been up and down, to say the least. And honestly, they have kind of a similar identity. Neither of them are great defensively this year. They have a whole lot of star power, but not a lot beyond that. Alex, as we talk about the Blues, and sometimes I bring up the question of, hey, why don't they go get Claude Giroux? Why don't they go get some of these star players? What about a Matthew Kachuk in the offseason? All these different names that we've brought up. Is Vegas a potential cautionary tale as to what that could look like if the Blues did go start grabbing all of those stars, either at the deadline or as we approach the offseason? I think it absolutely is a cautionary tale. I mean, Vegas Vegas does things very differently than other teams in the National Hockey League. I mean, the last team that I can remember that did this would be maybe the Chicago Blackhawks, but they did it in a way where it seemed to always work where they would go out there and they would get a big time player and then they would have to move on from some other players to make sure that they could fit that player in the cap. The difference for me with Vegas is I think Vegas is trying to grasp on to what got them to the Stanley Cup final in their first year. But what they're not realizing is they're moving on from all of these pieces. They're trying to put talent above chemistry. And I know that sounds crazy because people are gonna hear that, but like, oh, there's no such thing. Talent's better. I don't really know about that because if you look at what Vegas has done since their inaugural season where they had 51 wins, they have only gotten worse every single season. It's dropped every single year. And if you look at the trajectory of what they have done in terms of players, you know, they made the trade to get Max Pacioretty, already. But at what cost when they make that trade? They traded away a couple of younger players that were crucial to what they were able to accomplish in that first year and granted Max Pacioretty has been very good for him so has Mark Stone also very good for him but then things started to get a little haywire when they signed Alex Petrangelo which retrospect made them force them to trade away Mark Andre Fleury and then they traded away Ryan Reeves and then they traded away a couple of other impactful players long answer here I think this is absolutely a cautionary tale because to just go after the big names and bring in the high-level talent of, oh, well, we want Jack Eichel and we want Alex Petrangelo, that's great, but you're getting away from what Doug Armstrong has always talked about, what's win, what wins them hockey games. It's not so much one player that you have on their roster that can go out there and dominate, like the Edmonton Oilers with Connor McDavid. It's also about the third and fourth line players. It's the second pairing defensemen. It's the goaltenders. It's the group that can win you hockey games. And I don't think Vegas has that anymore. I still think Vegas is good. I I should say that out front. But the reason why I view them as a bit of a cautionary tale, it's not so much even necessarily the chemistry, although that's definitely part of it, Alex. It it shouldn't be completely dismissed out, out of hand. 
I, I think the reason why I view them as a cautionary tale is because Eichel, $10 million. Stone, $9.5 million. Petro, $8 million. Pacioretty, 7 Carlson, 6 And they've got a bunch of other dudes that are up in that range. They are right now, depending on six different dudes forward-wise that are on the, the minimum salary thresholds, they've got four guys that are factoring into their blue line that are in the minimum salary thresholds. That's what you have to do when you have all of these stars that we're talking about. And when you're trading away draft picks the way that they have, they don't have their first, third, or fourth round pick this year. They don't have their second round pick next year. The cupboard gets pretty bare pretty and they've quickly. they a lot of their guys in the minors that were supposed to be coming up for them that they acquired in that expansion draft. And now they're suddenly starting to lean on guys like a Jake Wallman or a Steve Santini that are fringe like the 4a players in major league baseball yeah, those Nathan are the walkers those are the guys that they're depending heavily on now to be able to come up and make significant contributions if you don't have a big time contribution from a jack eichel or as you're looking at right now if alec martinez and mark stone are both on ltir and your goalie goes through a bit of a dry spell well, buddy, it can look pretty bad, man. And that's what they're dealing with. It's what Edmonton has dealt with at times this season as well. And that's why when I look at what Doug Armstrong has built here in St. Louis with this roster, he always talks about how hey, we're not going to be like Colorado. We're not going to be like Edmonton. We're not going to be constructed like Pittsburgh was while they were going on those cup runs. That's not inherently a bad thing. And as we get closer and closer to this trade deadline, it makes me think that this team that the Blues currently have assembled is worth going in on, man. Like, I, I don't know if that means going out there and getting a star. It might mean as simple as, I don't love Ben Sherratt. Maybe Ben Sherratt's exactly what this team is missing, you know? Maybe that's the style of player. Maybe it's Jamie Alexiak. I, I don't know who the specific guy is. I trust Doug Armstrong to figure that one out. But I was reading earlier today on ESPN.com, and they were going through a bunch of different teams and what their trade deadline uh, decisions could come to. Here's what Emily Kaplan wrote about the Blues in her story. Quote, I don't get the sense that St. Louis is going to be willing to part with Ville Husso, though plenty of teams are interested. But I do think that Doug Armstrong is plotting something to add to his group. Army will claim he has no cap space, but I have heard that the Blues are lurking around some big names, including the likes of Claude Giroux. And they are potentially in the market for blue line help as well. Both. This is a general manager unafraid to do something bold or creative, just like Tampa Bay does. Who uh, And Tampa Bay, by the way, is in a similar cap situation. There's no coincidence that those are two general managers that recently won Stanley Cups. I don't know how they're going to make it work money-wise. I don't know what they're going to do as we get closer to the trade deadline. But what I do know is right now you're right there with Calgary for the second best record in the Western Conference. You have a team that is top five in goals allowed, goals for, penalty kill, and power play. This is a team that can win the cup. And it doesn't mean you got to go out there and get a star and chase those guys the way that Vegas has over the last three or four years. But it does mean that in my mind, Alex, this is a team that is worth being aggressive for. And if that means giving up picks, giving up maybe even multiple first round picks, I think I'd be willing to do that this year to be able to make the money work to go all in on this team. Yeah, the, the difference between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Blues is they don't do this all the time. 
Doug Armstrong only does this type of all-in move when he feels like he has the right roster. And I know a lot of people will say, yeah, and it didn't work for him when they did that with Ryan Miller. Look, sometimes you have to gamble when you go all-in, and it didn't pay off that time. But when Doug Armstrong knows he has something, he's willing to spend and fix that upgrade or do whatever he has to. And I love Emily Kaplan's comp to Julian Breezebois, the GM for the Tampa Bay Lightning, because that's exactly what everyone is comping the Blues possibly doing, the David Savard comp that we heard Chris, Keir- Chris Geary tell us yesterday. The first and third, and you involve a third-party team to eat some of that cap. That's the creativity that Doug Armstrong is going to do. And I saw Pierre Lebrun tweet out earlier today of The Athletic that right now, selling teams are getting frustrated because the buying teams aren't moving yet. And the buying teams have just been saying, hey, give us some more time because we're trying to figure out this puzzle that is the salary cap and making these things work. Doug Armstrong is going to be the head of his class with all of this. And I don't know if it is Claude Giroux. I don't know if it's Mark Giordano or Ben Sherratt. But I can tell you that he will be going after the big fish in this trade market because he knows he has the team that can win a Stanley Cup if you just add an upgrade. Set the money aside, and let's say all it takes is draft picks. And and maybe you end up having to include Marco Scandella in this kind of a deal as a result of that because you're not giving up prospects. But what is the ideal trade deadline for your St. Louis Blues? You want my ideal trade Your deadline? ideal trade deadline. Oh, boy, Ferrari's going to go and, crazy. And again, <laughs> no, no prospects involved. Yeah. Only picks. Maybe Marco Scandella to make the money work. What's the ideal trade deadline in your opinion? And assume that they can make the money work. Well, uh, my ideal trade deadline, I'm officially back in, guys. Jamie Alexiak. <laughs> the Mongoon is officially back. I don't know why I'm back. I saw the NHL Network, and we're going to have EJ Raddick with us today at 1.30, so he's going to hopefully not break my heart. I hope Blues fans understand that yesterday at, what was it, 2.14, Tanner? Yeah, yeah. we had barely been off the air. <laughs> <laughs> Alex sends us a text, and all it is is just a graphic from NHL Network that shows like five different guys that says, which of these would you want your team to acquire? It didn't say these guys are available. Nope. It didn't say reports are it emerging. that Alexiak is not. Nope. It just said, which of these guys would you like your team to acquire? And Alex sent, to, sent it to us and said, Guys, I'm back uh, on the Jamie Alexiak train. I'm back on the Alexiak train. This is like me with Sean Manai. I know. I know. Like, I can be told no a million different times. It doesn't matter. I, I still want him. It's I still want happen. him. Because, look, I mean, there was a report, and I forgot who put the report out there, but there's a report that things aren't going well in, in Seattle. And I think Emily Kaplan had actually had it in her piece that, you know, Mark Giordano, some people have been frustrated with how Seattle has gone this season maybe the 29-year-old who's locked up for the next couple of seasons at the same amount of money that Jacob Chikrin has on his contract, like maybe he would want out and you could bring him into the Central Division. You want my ideal trade deadline? I do. That is it. Because that is everything you need a top four defenseman. Just Just bring in Alexiak and we're good. Because I think that fixes what you need, but it, it doesn't just fix it this year. It fixes the next couple of seasons. Would you trade let's say Scandella first and a third to oh, make yeah. the money work, and you're giving up a first and a third for Jamie Alexia. 100%. Mark it down now. Pull the trade. Doesn't matter. Because you got yourself a top four now for the next three years, I think he's locked up with his with his deal with Seattle. Like, you've locked him up to play with Colton Pareko. You want to twin towers what it used to be with Pareko and Bomeister? Jamie Rivers talks about it all the time. That's these two. So I know I'm off on my rocker with this, that I'm back on the Jamie Alexiak train. That would be my ideal trade deadline. But if I have to be realistic here, I think my ideal trade deadline would be to get Claude Giroux and Ben Chirot. 
and you said put the money aside, I think you can make the money work with those two. It'd be tough, but you could do it. The way you'd have to make it – so I, I, I looked it up earlier today to, to figure out, okay, kind of ha- what would this look like? It, you would have to have – those their respective teams, so Montreal and Philly, eat half of their salaries and also include another team for both of them and send out Scandella. So you're giving up a lot of draft picks to make this happen. You're probably giving up multiple first, multiple third round picks and sending out Scandella. And that's the way you could make it work. But and maybe you have to give up a prospect in there as well. It's a lot. It's getting a little but, crazy. And it's two expiring deals. But, it, but you want to get a you want to yeah. you want to be the ultimate team going into the second stretch run going into the finals or the Stanley Cup playoffs. You're the best team out there. There's no moves that any of the other teams can make that could could second what you are doing or try and compete with what you have done if you acquire the best forward available and acquire a defenseman that matches your skills. Here's a question for you guys. I've got let's go four different options here. Option one, you get Giordano. And your guy Clutterbuck. Oh, baby. So you've got your top pairing defenseman and a fourth liner. Option two, you get Sherratt and Clutterbuck as well. Option three, you get the Philly guy. So you get my guy, Justin Braun. Oh, boy. And you you get Giroux. Option four, you get Giroux and Sherratt. Oh, that's option four. What's the the, the caveat with it? But... The top three, you're giving up a first and third round pick to be able to get. The last one, you're giving up two firsts, a third, and Scandella. I'm, and maybe a prospect. I'm going the, who's the prospect? You can't just be – now you're pulling an Anthony Stalter move on me. Well, maybe <laughs> a prospect. Is this prospect Jake Neighbors? Is it Scott Perunovic? It's either Perunovic or one of the goalies. Or is it Alexander Bolduke? It's, it, it, you're going to have to give up significant prospects for that one. Because you, you've got to take on so much money. Okay. It, Let's get rid of that was, one. It, it Let's was, say that's not an option. <laughs> Realistically speaking, it's, it's, it's unlikely. And it's Giordano and Clutterbuck, so I'm acquiring guys from different teams. Yep, Giordano, Clutterbuck, Sherratt, Clutterbuck, Brown, uh, Braun, and Giroux. Oh, I think the obvious answer here is Braun and Giroux. I mean, you're getting the best available player acquisition at the trade deadline. And you're also adding a playoff experience defenseman that Greg Wyshynski told us is a guy that would match this team's identity. Yeah, that's the move I'm pulling right Tanner, now. Tanner, which one are you going with? Giordano and Clutterbuck, so a fourth-line player. Sherratt and Clutterbuck, Clutterbuck or Braun no, and Giroux. I would go Giordano Clutterbuck. I, I think Mark Giordano is the number one piece for the Blues that can help kind of propel them towards that Stanley Cup run because it fixes that top four defenseman. If you ask me what I think of those three options are more likely from the Blues, I would say it's probably Ben Sherratt and, and Clutterbuck. That's I'm starting to drink the Sherratt Kool-Aid a little it bit. It feels like such a Blues move to go that route. So You're I'm getting, getting an identity fourth-line player that brings some so, physicality. Brian. You've got I think Ben Sherratt's the guy that they're eyeing. I, this is not reporting. This is pure speculation by me. It just everybody that we talk to says the perfect fit for them all the hockey guys that we talked to the perfect fit for the blues would be ben Sherratt. and i 
I just I get the sense that that's the guy that makes the most sense so for them. So you're saying Alexiak's not going to happen? Man, we don't even know that he's available. Like, what? there is zero NHL reporting. NHL Network said trade candidates. We'll talk about that with EJ Raddick of NHL Network coming up at 1.30. we got a bunch of good interviews for you throughout the day today. Jeremy Guthrie and Justin Masterson, two former MLB pitchers, both of whom have been involved with the MLBPA. They're going to join us to give us the uh, player side of things when it comes to this CBA negotiation. We'll also talk with Mike McKenna coming up at 11.30. But coming up next, speaking of the CBA negotiations, oh boy, last night there was an explosive piece from The Athletic. Yeah, the bringer of doom, Evan Drellich, at it again. We'll tell you what he had to say next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I don't think the owners had any mind at all to negotiate a fair deal that day. I think this is exactly what they wanted to do. I think they wanted to put more pressure on the players, miss a few games and make us really feel it. As history has proven, the players aren't going to crack. They're going to have to be reasonable and they're going to have to come to the table with fair offers. The one thing that's not lost on us that can seem like it is, is we love our fans. We love the game of baseball and we're trying to do what we think is right for our players coming up. But it doesn't mean we don't love our fans and appreciate them so much. We do love them. We cannot wait to get back out there and play in front of them again. That was Adam Wainwright yesterday talking with KSDK. You can check that out on their website, channel5ksdk.com. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. We'll get to Mike McKenna, the former NHL goalie and now daily face-off analyst, coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. But Alex, uh, as much as... I would like to believe that there is some sort of optimism here and hearing Adam Wainwright talking about this just always makes me feel better. There was a story that dropped late last night over on The Athletic that gave me more pessimism than I have had at any point in time during these negotiations, and I'm not overstating that. So this comes from, of course, the one and only Evan Drellich. Oh, this Evan guy. The According to Drellich, the Reds, Tigers, Diamondbacks, and Angels owners – objected to raising the CBT during negotiations with the players to $220 million. Why were they objecting? Quote, at least some of the four owners took stances based on their personal feelings towards costs and baseball's current economic system. End quote. That according to The Athletic. Now, a reminder, the Major League Baseball owners need 23 of the 30 of them to approve a new CBA. You now have at least four that we know of publicly that said, uh-uh, not interested in moving that CBT threshold up. Now, if you're uh, new to this, if you haven't been listening, if you've been trying to block out any of the CBA talks, what is the CBT? It is essentially the cap. If you go over that dollar figure, so in this particular offer, $220 million, that team would have to then pay a tax on whatever the dollar figure is that you would go over that amount by. Last year, there were only two teams in Major League Baseball that did so. This upcoming season, it's expected to be, once again, only two teams, the Mets and the Dodgers. There's not a whole lot of teams that go above it. There are a lot of teams, though, that treat it as a cap. There were seven teams last year that were within $5 million of that threshold, so a lot of owners are treating it as such. Alex, the reason why this made me so pessimistic 
is because of the reason why they were objecting to this. It wasn't like they had this well-thought-out, clearly orchestrated plan of, yeah, but here's what goes wrong when we have this specific number for the CBT. No, according to The Athletic, they took their stance because of, quote, personal feelings towards costs in baseball's economic system. Alex, there's no way to fix that. If you're one of these four owners and you are clearly just objecting to the way that baseball is operating in terms of its financial structures right now, sell. Sell your team. Get out of the sport. If you have an issue with the way that baseball is operating, which, by the way, it is highly profitable for these owners, and there are a whole lot of reasons why you would want to be a baseball owner right now, then get out. Like that, that, That's the only way that I can look at this. And the thing that is surprising to me is who was involved with this. I'm not surprised the Diamondbacks and Reds owners were, were part of this. The Angels? The Tigers? The Illich family has been known as being a really good ownership group in previous years. And now they're tied to this? That was stunning to me. What did you make of this story last night from The Athletic? Well, just that phrase that you just used right there, their personal feelings toward costs and baseball's economic systems. I'm sorry, who's in charge of that? The costs and the economic systems? Like, who's in charge of that being a, a pro for owners? The fans, correct? Like, they're the ones that can dictate the economic system for your team in baseball. And you're kind of throwing a bunch of ish in their face over all of this? That doesn't make much sense to me. And then on top of it, your commissioner, who's basically the spokesman for you, he's also the one that's supposed to be riding the game for you. Like, he, you're basically mad at yourselves right now because of the economic systems that you're frustrated with, and that's the reason why you're holding out in this negotiation and why you're refusing to move this up any because of everything that's taken place. That's frustrating in itself, and yeah, you're right. It does cause a lot more pessimism with all of this. The part that I just don't understand, and we were talking about this before the show like you're concerned about the CBT and you're treating it as a cap because you're 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 concerned that teams will abuse it if it goes higher. There's two teams right now that are above it this season, the Mets and the Dodgers as you just mentioned. And if a majority of these owners are ticked off at the economic system, then why are you even worried if this goes up a little bit? Because the Dodgers might abuse it because they have money to spend? But it's not. That's the thing that's weird is like the Dodgers are already going so far and above this threshold that it doesn't matter to them. They're spitting in the face of the CBT. They don't care. The teams that are going up to it are, are like the Red Sox and the Yankees. Like Those are the teams well, that are going right up near it and treating it as a cap. And explain this to people who are listening because it, it, it confused me a little bit when, when you broke it down for me before the show. So what happens when these teams go above that, that luxury threshold? So when you go above it, it's treated as if you're an NBA fan, the luxury tax, where you then pay a tax on every dollar that you go above it. So the first year, it's like a 20% tax rate. So uh, let's just say you signed a player, you were right at the tax rate, you were at the CBT threshold of $220 million. Let's use that for an example, right? You're there right now, and you decide to sign a $10 million pitcher for next year. Well, then the 20% tax rate that you would be paying would make that pitcher actually a $12 million pitcher because you're paying an extra $2 million. So it, it gets a little funky, and there's a repeater's tax where it gets more expensive, and eventually by the third year, you're basically paying dollar for dollar into the tax system, and that's what teams don't like doing. That, that's why they reset, where they go under for a year, and then they'll go back over. But 
for these teams, like, I don't think they care about that. No. I just don't believe them. I think what they're trying to do is make sure that those other teams, they don't care about the Dodgers and the Mets. Those guys are runaway trains. Like, they're, they're going to be spending way more than whatever the threshold is. The teams that they care about are the ones that are going right underneath it, and they are truly treating the CBT as a cap. And those are teams like, for example, the Yankees or the Red Sox. And when you go up to but not over it, that limits their spending. So that those are the teams that you're really worried about. But again, I, I just think this is silly. Like focusing this much time and energy on such a nuanced and antiquated part of the system is odd to me, man. It again goes back to the comparison that I had of the no movement clause in the NHL. I, I just, I have never understood, honestly, why it is such a big issue for either side, honestly. Like, if you are, for example, Alex Petrangelo, I I get why you would want it because it's a respect factor, right? It's out of principle. I have earned this right to not have to go down to the minors, to not get bought out, to not get traded if I don't want to, to not be exposed in the NHL's expansion draft. To not get paid if the season goes on a pause or something like that. I I get why the no-movement Claudus is something that you would want. But if you are that player and you're making $8 million per year, for example, none of those things are likely to happen to you. And the only thing that is really different between the no-move clause and the no-trade clause is basically not having to go up and down to the AHL, which isn't going to happen if you're making $8 million per year, most likely, or getting bought out. So it's kind of weird that that becomes such a focus in the NHL. And the same thing is true with the CBT right now in major league baseball. The other note from this story, Alex, and this gets back to just like, this is honestly one of the reasons why I'm so pessimistic today. This is from Evan Drellich. One of the league's efforts that irked the players was a proposal to incorporate meal money and the stipends that players receive into the luxury tax calculations. Major League Baseball, in other words, wanted to count the amount of money players receive for food against the amount of money that teams could spend before they are taxed. MLB also tried to include stipends paid to players who participate in the All-Star Game, the Home Run Derby, and other events into said calculations. Alex, this would be like if our company decided, you know what? Uh, the expense account that you have for when you're on the road, that's actually part of your salary, and you're going you're gonna to need to pay that on taxes. Um, or the, the money that we give you as a per diem when you go out of town, mm, we actually count that as your salary, so that's going to count against you in your next negotiation with us. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. This is owners being incredibly cheap by doing this. I, the reason why I think this detail is so important as it comes to these negotiations moving forward, is because if they are nickel and diming like this, if they are caring so much as to care about what the players are eating and how much that costs for the team meal after a game, man, when they've got a bunch of pasta, like, what are we doing here? How are we going to get this resolved? So (laughs) I I can tell you they're not getting it resolved if that's their take and that's their stance because that is just two middle fingers right in the faces of the players. And this is just going to go on for a while if that's how these owners feel. It's baffling to me, and I wish that we had more good news for you, but unfortunately we do not. 
Um, the only good news from today is that both the players and the owners have come together. Each side is going to have a million dollars that's put into account that is going to go towards the the season workers for the uh, the ballparks and all of that. So the seasonal workers, uh, the players and the owners are taking care of them at least early in the season right now. So that that's a good thing. But there's basically nothing else positive that's come out in recent days on Major League Baseball's negotiations. We'll get to some questions and answers coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, Mike McKenna, former NHL goalie here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We are very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line as we do each and every Friday to be joined by former NHL goalie, now NHL analyst for the Daily Faceoff. He is Mike McKenna joining the show. Mike, I'm assuming you've already been out on the ice. You've already had your morning coffee. You've already basically had your entire day done as it is 1145 in the morning. How you doing today, my man? Well, I wish I could say I have everything done. I'm still doing homework at this point. It feels like the homework never ends for an NHL analyst, but I've chosen that job. I already knocked out one piece for today. My goaltending matchup of the day, which I'm in a little tip here. It's going to be Capo Kakinen and Craig Anderson going head-to-head for the Wild and Sabres. I think that'll be an interesting one. So that's done. And then later today, uh, I got a little bit of time on SiriusXM to take care of. So it is a busy day. A very, very busy day for me, but I can't wait for 5 o'clock at night. <laughs> I was say, there's nothing wrong for busy days, Mike. That's how, that's how you just go, especially at this time of the year, right? This time of the year, give me two sides of this because you've been a analyst for a team. You've been a player for an NHL team. What is 17 days away from a trade deadline like for, for guys around a roster? I don't think at this stage of the game, two weeks out, it really sinks in. Because think of the number of trades that have taken place so far leading up to trade deadline. Tyler Toffoli, okay, there's one, right? And there's not many more than that that have happened. Okay, there's been some minor deals left all over the place. But I I think for us, we don't really start to get into the mindset of being traded or having that possibility really until about the week leading up to trade deadline, when everything starts to get moving three or four days out and you start to see deals happen, which of course is something of a false sense of security because these deals can happen at any point. You know, I I thought that the Toffoli deal especially would kind of get the market moving and it didn't prove to do that just yet. So um, it's kind of that wait and see game. You know, what's possible, you know, if you're on the trade block, but there's really just the, the, aspect of it that anybody can get traded unless you have a ton of of protection in your contract so um from the player side you're not thinking about it but from the analyst side holy cow we've been talking about trade deadline now for three months (laughs) so (laughs) you know it's it's totally different everything is fixated on the standings and trade deadline and and trophy award races and it's what makes it fun and interesting but the players really aren't thinking about it as much as we might think Mike, as we've been talking about this trade deadline for, as you mentioned, probably about three months now, I I think here in St. Louis, we've kind of settled on, okay, they they probably need a top four defenseman. That's one thing that we would like to see them. Like, we believe they need that from the outside looking in, at least. 
I think there are some that would like to see them have a fourth line player added to this lineup. That's a want, though. And then kind of as the pie in, pie in the sky option, we, we've had this Claude Giroux idea that's, that's been presented to us. And it's like, oh, that, that'd be a lot of fun if they could make that work. What do you think is the ideal trade deadline scenario for this team? Like forgetting the compensation side, just if you could plop any one, maybe it's multiple players onto this blue team as we get closer to the deadline and you can assume that the money will work. What would it be? It's defense for me. I don't think that there's any need to add firepower to the Blues. I think they've got realistically three lines that you can trust on the ice at any time to be able to give you a boost if needed. And and they've, you know, the blinds have been in a blender all year. Realistically, you haven't seen them settle out into, you know, what their current iteration looks like until just recently. Um, you know, do I think they could add some depth at forward? Possibly, yeah. I mean, like when. Dakota Jackson gets seven minutes a night. You know, like you're thinking, okay, I understandably he's not a regular with the club, but but you do have to worry, like, hey, are we going to really utilize the fourth line in the way we'd like to? That's one I would think. But the, for me, it's D. It really is. You know, I I don't think Jake Wallman is quite ready for playoffs. I mean, Perunovic had a nice stint earlier this year. He's still not back yet. I don't think he's quite at that stage either. And if you can bump Mikola down and put somebody with Pareko, I really think that helps out. And I love Mikola. I love the trajectory of his career. Um, but, boy, even against the Rangers the other night, it was a tough night for Mikola and Pareko. Like, I just didn't think they were able to control the game against a team like uh, New York that can control the pace so well, that can snap the puck around on the power play. And that's where I think a shutdown D, and in and, and this day and age, that's just shutdown D. I mean, you need somebody that can still move their feet. But you need somebody with experience. And I think that would really go a long way for the Blues because this is a well-constructed team. They don't need a lot here. They just need maybe another tweak, another piece or two, I think, to get them into that contention uh, bracket for the Stanley Cup again. Mike, I've had this uh, strange obsession with one defenseman over the last couple of years, and it's been Jamie Alexiak, who now is with the Seattle Kraken, of course. I believe you played with them in Dallas for a couple of games do you see any scenario, because I know Alexiak got locked up once Seattle uh, claimed him in the expansion draft, and I think they really like this guy. What's not like to like when you're six foot eight and can do what he does? Do you see a scenario where he could be a guy that the Blues could acquire, and do you feel like he could match the Blues' need? I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't think Alexiak's truly the guy within the, for the Blues in my eyes, um, and, and he's got a pretty – good contract there in in seattle uh with some trade protection to it as well i mean his aav isn't atrocious you know i mean you're looking at four six on a cap hit um i'm just not sure he's got the boots to really go on the back end for the blues with how they want to play would he be able to shut down would he be able to play tough minutes yeah absolutely and i love jamie alexiak but i'm not sure he's really top pair you know he can play top four Realistically, on a really good team, I think Oleksiak's probably in your in your five six. Um, so I'm not sure he's the fit. But I've got my eye on a couple people around the league too. I mean, we've oh, tell me who they are. Yes. Come, come on, Mike. That's you know, I'm going to ask you who they that are. Is, that is a gift to us yeah. right there. Yeah. Well, listen, I like Nick Letty a lot. I think he's someone that at the end of his you know contract, it's a big hit. It's at five five, but I, I think he'd be a really good pickup. Okay, somebody who does have a lot of experience um, that's still only 30 years old. It feels like Nick Letty should be 35 years old. He's not. He's logged a lot of miles, 
But, you know, he's finishing up in Detroit on this contract. He's a, he's an unrestricted free agent. Like, I don't think he's going to cost a lot, and he'd provide really steady defense, I believe. So he's one person that I think could happen there. I mean, with the Blues, it's an attractive market, so I think Giordano could even be interested. Um, and to me, that's the type of all-around defenseman. You need somebody who can skate. They've got to be able to move their feet, um, and they've got to be able to make that first pass. Giordano fits that bill. I like Letty a lot. Um, but I'm not sure how they're going to go. You don't know what this market's going to shake out at because everybody's waiting on Sherratt and potentially Chikrin to make their choices or teams to make those choices, Klingberg as well. You mentioned Sherratt. i got to ask you about him because I feel like everybody has a different opinion on who he is as a player right now. Some will say, hey, he's a drag right now, even on Montreal, and his, his numbers on the ice are really bad. He's not the same guy that he was when Shea Weber was his defensive pairing. Others will say, well, he's in a really bad situation right now. What do you want the numbers to look like? He's still super physical. He's a guy that can eat 20 minutes a game for you. Where do you come out on Ben Sherratt right now and whether or not he would be a fit with Colton Pareko? I'm, oh, I think he'd be a good fit for Pareko. I do. But I, I'm also, not just because of the numbers, wary. I'm wary of Ben Sherratt. And it's not as much number-based. It's just coming from a really difficult season in Montreal, but admit it's been better recently under Marty St. Louis. But listen, that fact that really sucks the life out of the room when it's been that long of a season. I always have hesitation and concern for bringing in players that have been in losing environments and how that's affected them over the course of the year. And everything I've ever heard is that he's a pro. He'd be able to slot into any locker room, no problem. But that always concerns me, and that's part of the tightrope you walk when you bring in players from teams that aren't contenders. You know, when you're getting rentals. They're coming from bad teams, a lot of them. You know, whoever gets Claude Giroux is going to get a player who's going to produce, but he's coming from a bad situation. You know, how does that play out? How do you integrate back into a good locker room uh, that's that's used to winning games? So, I mean, I think Sherratt's a good fit. I, I'm, I'd be kind of surprised if the Blues could pull it off, though, because there's going to be so many teams interested in that player that it's going to make it difficult. It's going to have to be a pretty big bid. And that's where I think those second-tier defensemen, um, you know, like the Lettys of the world that I mentioned, are probably more likely to be a fit for the Blues and probably somebody who doesn't have a lot of term left on their contract. Alex, he, he's saying he likes Justin Braun. That's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing be a good he likes, fit, too. I'm hearing he likes I mean, Jamie Alexiak. We're going to just go back yeah. on the Jamie Alexiak thing because my obsession just can't be uh, taken care of right now. Mike, on the, <laughs> Mike, on the goaltending side, you know, Vili Huso, he had an okay game against the Rangers on Wednesday. How concerned should people be when you've had, what is it now, th- four consecutive games or three consecutive games, four of his last seven that he's given up three or more goals in? Is that something to be concerned of? No, I, I think it's just the natural resetting. I mean, like, you can't go an entire season and post a 940 in the National Hockey League as a goaltender unless your name's Dominic Hoshik. And even then, I think he was the highest he ever posted was maybe a 938 or 937 save percentage, and that's just through the roof. You can't expect that. And, you know, watching Huso play, I haven't seen any problems structurally with his game whatsoever. I, you know, I did see... Against the Rangers, he got caught on post integrations um, a couple times, especially Strom's goal where he's attacking the net, but that's going to happen. So I, I don't think that there should be a level of concern here with Huso. I mean, look at Bennington. He's played well his last couple times out after struggling for a bit. This is how things work during the year. And 
you look at Huso and he's going to go out and have one or two solid games in a row, and nobody's going to remember the fact that he allowed three, 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 four in against in games. You know, like dude, you could be playing for the Minnesota Wild, who's allowed five and six goals recently. <laughs> I'll take three goals any day for a goalie in the NHL, especially when they've faced as much rubber as Huso. I mean. He's, he's averaging well over 30 shots a game, 32, 33 shots a game. So I, I have no concern there at all. He is Mike McKenna. You can check him out over at the Daily Faceoff. Give him a follow on Twitter as well at Mike McKenna 56. Mike, we appreciate the time as always, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. Enjoy your show later on on Sirius XM. We'll talk with you again next week. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, if anybody's looking for something to do, the Blue Note Cup is taking place at Centene this weekend. You'd see some of the best youth hockey in town on the ice. I'll be out there, and uh, it'd be fun to see anyone come out and join us. So if you're looking for a little youth hockey fix, that's the place to be out at Centene in Maryland Heights. Watch the Blue Note Cup. Heck yeah. Nothing better than to be out here at Centene Community Ice Center. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you as always, man. That's Mike McKenna joining us here on 101 ESPN. Nick Letty, a new name to throw into the mix, Alex Ferrario. How do you, how do you like your guy, Nick Letty? Uh, he's okay. Um, yeah, get yeah. excited. <laughs> I mean, look, he, he was good with the Islanders before he went to Detroit. I mean, he played in 22 playoff games for him when they went all the way to, what was that, the conference final? or Yeah, the conference final. Uh, oh, no, that was the Stanley Cup final that they went to. He won but, a cup with Chicago. I mean, the guy's got experience. That's what you've been talking about with Justin Braun, right? You got experience. Uh, he's a smaller stature defenseman, yep. if I'm not mistaken. So he's six foot, 205 pounds. He does have some offense with him. I get where Mike's coming from. You want a guy who can skate. You want a guy who can stay with Colton Pareko. My bigger concern, though, is I want a guy who's who's strictly in his own zone and ruthless when guys try and get in front of the goaltender. Because how did you get beat by the Rangers? Chris Kreider parked in front of Villahuso. How will Gabriel Landeskog beat you? in a playoff series parked in front of your goaltender. I need a guy who's basically going to shove that guy out of the front of the crease. And I don't know if Nick Letty can do that. Always got to be careful of the tip ins with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks. And I'm Brandon Kyle after yesterday, 15 minutes or so the power play coming under some scrutiny for the blues. We'll talk about that. But next six, five, seven, eight, O's your comfort service text line. Ask us anything here on one Oh one ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything, which is very different than our typical questions and answers at this point in time. Uh, let's start out with this one from the 618. Guys, who is the current NH- or NFL coach? Excuse me. Uh, the best NFL coach currently active without a Super Bowl victory. Cliff Kingsbury. That's why he got his contract extension. Exactly. Just trying to make me mad. That's I mean, all that is. He's probably he's works with the best GM in the NFL who doesn't I have a Super Bowl. I almost threw Zach also. Taylor out there, but he hasn't been in the league as long. God, that's think. such a terrible answer. It's such a terrible answer. Um, really, T Bone and I are going to be fifty bucks richer. I'll throw out a few through. that I think could fit into this criteria. Um, I really like Sean McDermott with Buffalo. I think Bill Belichick, Mike Vrabel's really good. I'm not even responding to that. Um, I, 
I personally really like um, Kyle Shanahan. So those would probably be my top three. He had his chance and he choked, so he know. doesn't deserve one. I'll throw right? I'll throw Ron Rivera into that conversation. I mean, I like he's been Rivera. bad in Washington, but he was really good with Carolina, got to a Super Bowl, and then he lost. But that was a Cam Newton problem. Uh, but <laughs> he would be the other one that I'd throw into that conversation. Sean McDermott's the one for me. I, I, I love everything about the way he coaches and what he's done. Uh, I, I feel like he's the one that, that uh, should have a Super Bowl by now. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text slide for Ask Us Anything from the 314. Guys, do you think it's lame that the fast lane is doing their polar bear plunge on a 70-degree day? No. That, that's how it worked out. If it was a 20-degree day, they would have signed up to do the exact same thing. And it's a 70-degree day. They got lucky. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. What do you want them to do? They're not going to delay the thing because it's going to be nice outside. Are you saying this because Jamie Rivers is standing in studio 100%. right now? 100%. Okay. I was going to say because I saw him staring at the camera, so I figured that was it. I'll say it. I think it's lame. They should have done it when it's cold out. The water's you say still that to cold. Jamie's face. Go ahead and go back to the studio. No, I won't say to Jamie's face. I won't see him until uh, Monday. I'll talk to him tomorrow, though. He mm. probably won't answer. I'm sure but the water's still cold. How about give him sure? benefit of the doubt? Well, no, I mean, I'm I will, not going to go swimming right now. So yeah, I will say, say that's how the cold. schedule works out. And, hey, sometimes it's tough to get that plan when you have four different people that you're trying to schedule yeah. it with. That's how it worked out. Sorry that it's the beginning of March and it's 70 degrees. By the way, for more details on that, go to 101ESPN.com. Uh, somebody else mentions the temperature of the water is still going to be unbelievably cold. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, I like Jamie's idea. He said they're all going to wear banana hammocks. I, I respect it. I, I like it. it. I think you do it. From the 314, I'm having a barbecue tomorrow for my birthday, and because there's such great, great weather, oh, that's going to be outside. What is your favorite yard game if you're going over to somebody's place for barbecue? I can tell you what my least favorite yard game is. I'm guessing you're not a fan of, uh, you're of bags. Of, yeah, that's what I was going to say, bags. Cornhole, but yeah, whatever that is, I'm not a fan of it at all. Really? Yeah. It's, it's boring. It's really boring. I just think you're not good at it. No, I'm not, but it's very boring even if I'm good at it. Have you ever played Beersby? I think some people call it like... What is that? Oh, yeah. Is that what, where you knock um, you knock knock beers down with a Frisbee? Yeah. Some people call it like, uh, what is it, Hillbilly Golf or something like that? Oh, yeah. Hillbilly people... Golf is fun. That's where you got the PVC pipe and you have two golf balls tied to a string. You got to like toss them to get them wrapped that, around. That's a fun one. Yeah. Um, I my, my personal favorite is probably Beersby. Um, that's what we call it, where you've got the PVC pipe, you've got the bottle of beer, or there's other things that you can use up there. But bottle of beer typically is what you use, and then you've got the frisbee that you try to knock the beer off. That that's one of my favorites personally. I'd probably say Washers is one of my favorites, and then another one would be uh, I think it's called Can Can Jam. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, those, those are probably two of my favorites to have that you play in the yard. That's a good one as well. There's another one. What is it? Spikeball? Spike oh, Spikeball is really yeah. fun. We just got one of those for our registry. That's a... I like to play four square. That's what I like to play. You can't do that one. My God, man. My God. Uh, 65780 <laughs> is the Air Comfort Service text line for Ask Us Anything. Let's do this one from the 501. Guys, what's the worst case scenario for the start of the baseball season? Uh, there you is no start one. of the baseball season. Yeah. <laughs> Worst case scenario, and kind of seems like it's the most likely scenario right now. Uh, last thing here from the 314. Guys, it's going to be really nice outside. If you were spending the day outside, what would be your drink of choice? What's your drink of choice for a nice day outside? That you Let's say you're going to that barbecue that somebody no, just we're not invited, invited to. to. <laughs> What's your drink of choice for the day? Send us the address here. Cover service text line 65700. T-Bone will drink all your beer. Yeah, uh, and it's free food, so I'll be there. Mine's the goat seltzers. 
bust out a nice lime Bud Light seltzer. It's not warm oh, enough oh, yet for what? those for me. I need it to be like 80 plus. Really? Yeah. Huh. Man, you can never go wrong with a nice well, seltzer. You're, you're probably going to have the same response for me, but on a nice day like today, I like a summer shandy. That would be my go-to. Summer maybe, shandies maybe. are too sweet for me at That's, this point. It's Shocker. summer, man. You got it. You got, it's not summer yet. It's springtime. I'm more I'll of a that summer, like a fruity cocktail at this point in time. Fruity like not cocktail? super sweet cocktail, Sex but on the beach. Yeah, a, a good mixer to go with some vodka, maybe some tequila. That's my go-to around this time. It's, it's nice outside. Jamie Rivers is shaking his head at you right now. Why? Or What's me wrong too. With that? Well, you just said you'd like a fruity drink right now. I mean, I, I'm gonna go with a. Uh, I mean, whoever wants to sponsor us, probably an AB product as well. well mine or, would be seltzers, 12. so yeah. can't go wrong there. There you go. Coming up in about 15 <laughs> minutes or so, we get into to some NFL quick hitters. Somebody said, "Question is, would Alex show up to the birthday party with headphones on?" Of course, yeah, of absolutely. Course, of course, I would. I'd be yeah. the guy sitting in the corner drinking oh. seltzer. But coming up next, the power play coming under some scrutiny for the Blues. What's it mean? We'll talk about it coming up here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Hey, a former superstar blues defenseman said something really interesting on the radio yesterday. I was listening to the fast lane. They had this this brilliant guy on. His name's Jamie. Rivers. I always listen. To, oh, he was a former third round draft pick by the Blues. He was. That's why you can't give up third round picks because they could become a superstar. And Jamie yesterday was on BK was on the fast lane, and he was talking about the Blues power play and how he'd like to see some improvements there, especially after their disappointing performance against the Rangers. Here's what he had to say yesterday on the fast lane. If I'm Craig Bruby, I'd be talking about power play a little bit. And you go oh for go for. In a, a massive game where you could have closed it out, you could have ended, you could have put it out of reach, and you didn't. Problem is now is that you're getting good opportunities, and we're still looking for somebody else to pass it to instead of shooting where there's no other play. Instead of pulling a waster, we call that something a waster. I mean, fire it off the goalie. You never know. Like I said, he goes off the pad, off the shoulder. There's a rebound sitting mm-hmm. there. Blues aren't doing that. Force these goalies to make the save and force these teams to defend. I think the Blues are, you know, they're they're passing up opportunity where they could create more offense. This Jamie guy, he knows what he's talking about because I just saw a report from Jeremy Rutherford, who's at Blues practice today out in New York. He said the Blues are going through a pretty intense power play session right now. At one point, Craig Berube banged his stick on the ice and said, quote, same thing every game. Get the bleeping puck on the net. God, I'm already frightened and I'm not even there. So the Blues are working on that power play. And I I do want to say this. We should probably couch a little bit our disappointment in the power play, considering the Blues are number two in the NHL right now at 26%. They have the second best unit in the league. If they, the, the reason that they lost against the Rangers is not because they didn't get their convert on their power play opportunities. It's because they weren't good enough for the rest of the 20 minutes in the third period. That being said, Alex... There is some truth to the fact that they are way overpassing. And this is an issue right now, both at five on five and also on the power play. Is this something that in your mind is easy to fix? And do you see them doing so soon, especially after seeing Craig Berube yelling at them at practice? I mean, it's absolutely easy to fix because we've seen it multiple times this season. The New Jersey Devils game, that was a game where they went 0 for 4 on their power play. And out of those four power play opportunities, they had four total shots on goal. What happened the next game? Well, they went one for three against the Chicago Blackhawks. Like, 
the power play is such an up-and-down area that, yeah, sometimes it's going to be hot, sometimes it's going to be cold. Katy Perry. Katy Perry. <laughs> I, I, you, you listen to me sometimes, don't you? I still you? don't I get, get the you. reference. T-Bone still doesn't get the damn reference. God, man, you're the same age. Anyway, they, it, it's, it's, a, it's an area that can go up and down, and it's not so much of the production. It's more of what Craig Berube was talking about in practice today. Yeah, you might not score goals in three power play opportunities, but you can't come away with four shots on goal in three power play opportunities. When you get those power play chances, it's not so much of the lackadaisical, let's move the puck around quickly around. You're moving it too much. Sooner or later, you got to put a puck on the net and get some traffic in front because this is how teams build momentum in-game. They build momentum off of power play opportunities. You might not score, but if you get six shots on goal on a power play where you're already going to wear down at least eight of the players that are playing on the penalty kill for you in those two minutes, so that's an opportunity that the Blues could capitalize even if they don't score. Six of their last seven losses, the Blues have gone over in their power play. Interesting. So as much as we say, yeah, you know what, it is second best in the, in the National Hockey League, and that's an awesome spot to be in. And for the Blues, you do have to get much better at not passing the puck as much and just taking the shots when you get in there. Jamie was talking about this yesterday. Ken Hitchcock it used to be quantity over quality. He doesn't care how, how good the shots are, just shoot the puck. He wanted to see 40-plus shots on goal a night. Sometimes that works. But sometimes on the power play, like you're in right now where you didn't score against the Rangers – you don't need those six, seven extra passes to get that perfect one-time opportunity. You got Braden Shannon, Brandon Sods, and Ryan O'Reilly's in front of the net. Just put it on net so those guys can battle for it and score one of those dirty goals. I, I'm not worried in the least bit about their power play. I, I think they're going to be fine. I, I think they're going through a dry spell. We, we see this all the time, right? We saw this last year early in the season. They went through a little bit of a dry spell, and then boom, the second half of the year, they had the best power play unit in the NHL. I think you're going to see them get pretty hot here pretty soon on that unit, especially after seeing them working on it at practice. When they make something a a priority to the point where they're having intense practice sessions to be able to improve upon it, I, I think you're going to see them, especially against the Islanders and New Jersey over the next couple of days. I, I, I would be pretty surprised if you don't see a vastly improved unit over the next two games. One thing that I did want to ask you about, Alex, we've talked a lot about the trade deadline today for the Blues and what you want to see them do. And uh, we've put out a million different names as possibilities. I I did want to ask you, as we're kind of looking around the Western Conference and we're starting to turn our focus towards what the playoffs are going to look like, is there anything that you wouldn't want to see from a Blues fan's perspective other teams do? Like, what is the trade that Colorado could make that would concern you even more about Colorado? What is the trade that, uh, for example, you could see Calgary make that would be like, oh boy, uh, that that team's frightening. What are the deals that are potentially out there for the other Western Conference foes that you wouldn't want to see as a Blues fan? So, uh, I, I think there's two that would make me concerned. One would be Ben Sherratt going to Calgary. And I know we've kind of poo-pooed on Ben Sherratt a little bit and all the the national analysts we've talked to, including the superstar NHL defenseman Jamie Rivers, has said this guy can play. Yeah, I'm in. I'd be worried if he goes to Calgary because uh, uh, a guy like that that everyone says he's a beast in the playoffs playing for Daryl Sutter, that would be scary on top of the fact that they already have the nastiness of Matthew Kachuk and Milan Lucic and the scoring power with Goudreau and Lindholm and Tyler Toffoli. That would scare me. I don't think they could pull that off, though, but... 
I do know that they look at it as being aggressive this season in Calgary because with Goudreau's um, uncertain future as a UFA this year and Kachuk two years from now, they're going to want to try and go all in when they have this roster in place. The other one that I absolutely do not want to see, and we've we've heard the rumors, and it scares the bejesus out of me, Marc-Andre Fleury to the Colorado Avalanche. And now he's been connected to the Washington Capitals. I, I believe he's been connected to another team as well. Chicago has basically said Flurry's not going anywhere unless Flurry says he wants to be traded. But Colorado, as great as Darcy Kemper has been for them, Colorado knows goaltending is what has lost them games in the playoffs the last couple of seasons, health and playoff performance. You're telling me a Colorado Avalanche team that is already awesome at every aspect of their game, they go out there and acquire one of the best Stanley Cup playoff performers in terms of goaltending? Yeah, that scares the hell out of me because if they're able to get that, Colorado might be a well-oiled machine that you can't beat. Can I be honest with you? The only two teams that I'm worried about them making a big move are Calgary and Colorado. None of the other teams, like, they could go out and they could make a move, and, uh, yeah, they could get better. Like, Minnesota could get better at the deadline, and, and that could make them a difficult matchup in the playoffs. I'm anticipating already they're going to be a tough matchup for the Blues. I think the Blues are better, though. You could see the the Kings go out there, and maybe they decide, you know what, we're a year early on our build Let's go ahead and continue adding to this thing. Let's see what it looks like. Or maybe Vegas goes out there and says, hey, uh, we can't let this thing slide away from us. We need to go out there and make a big-time move uh, to be able to really capitalize on our current window. None of those teams really scare the bejeebses out of me. The Flames, though, them going out there and getting a big-time player, maybe it's another defenseman, that would scare me. Colorado going out there, and whether it's for a guy like Claude Giroux or adding a Marc-Andre Fleury who has all of the playoff experience and standing on his head in the play, those are things that would scare me. That's about it, man. This Blues team is so good right now, and I fully anticipate they're going to make a pretty sizable move as we get closer to the deadline. There's really nobody else that could could scare me in a significant way as we get closer to this trade deadline based on a move that they were able to make. Yeah, like Claude Giroux going to Colorado. Yeah, that'd be a scary good move for them because they're adding depth, but I still think the adv- their weakness would be goaltending. Uh, you know, if Giroux goes to the Minnesota Wild, I still think the Blues are the better team because they have more depth at the forward position. I not, honestly, I'm not even worried about the Eastern Conference teams making moves. And I know you just said the West, but you know some people have been texting us in saying Florida, Carolina. I'm not worried about them because if you see them in a Stanley Cup final game, in my opinion, that's already a success. And then it's just a crapshoot to see who can win in a Stanley Cup game or seven-game series. Colorado, Marc-Andre Fleury, Colorado, Mark Giordano, uh, Calgary, Mark Giordano, Ben Schrott, those moves, t- those moves worry me, but uh, the fact that the Blues are in those conversations makes me believe that I don't know if all of those things are going to happen. Coming up in about 10 minutes or so, we're going to be joined by Justin Masterson, former Major League Baseball pitcher and a Major League Baseball Players Association rep. Excited to get his perspective on this CBA negotiation in about 10 minutes. But coming up next, we're going to get some NFL quick hitters, the biggest stories emerging from the NFL Combine next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Along 
alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. The NFL Combine is in prime time this week, Alex, and there are some big-time stories that are coming out Other than of Kenny the NFL Pickett, Combine. Other than Kenny Pickett's or, small hands. As we like to call it here on BK and Ferrario, Tanner Hendricks in small hands. I will hey, say, Kenny Pickett upset. had a good day yesterday at the Combine. He, he looked impressive. Now, his hands looked like mini-me's, but otherwise, he, he looked pretty good <laughs> yeah, out there. small hand bros. Let's go. It, it was okay. an impressive day for a few different quarterbacks, I thought. I thought Desmond Ritter had a really good day. Ran a 4-5 flat. Malik Willis had himself a hell of a day. He's got a cannon of an arm. I have no idea if he knows how to play football at the NFL level. What does that mean, man? But he, he is. He did it for Liberty, and their basketball team's great. <laughs> yeah, that well, their basketball team just beats Missouri. That doesn't mean they're good, man. Um, I was impressed by the quarterbacks. It was the receivers, though, yesterday that really put on a show. There were eight different wide receivers, guys, that posted a 40-yard dash time under 4.4 seconds. They were absolutely flying. And you look at the any of the like top 100 prospects for this year's draft, you look at any of the top 50 lists, they are loaded with receiver talent. You stack that up with some of the best guys in the league right now that have come in over the last three to five years. Do you guys think there are more talented receivers in the league now than we have had really at any point in our viewing experience so let's say that let's claim it to be the last 20 years i can't remember a time when we saw this many guys that were at this level of talent in the nfl at that position yeah i would agree with that statement now it's interesting with this draft too because it's not like past drafts where there's three or four names that you just keep saying that it's like these are the guys these are the top echelon wide receivers this this draft feels like there's like nine or ten guys that are all on the same level. And I don't know if any of them are at that elite status. It's just the really good status, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like Devontae Smith was that elite status that everyone was talking about. Jamar Chase, although I thought the Bengals should have got a left tackle, that was the one that everyone was talking about. Am I wrong in thinking that this one just seems to be a lot more grouped together? So it's interesting because this year's class has a lot of guys that are just totally different in terms of what their skill sets are, right? If you want a big receiver, like you want a big dude, go get Drake London, the receiver out of USC. He plays a lot like Mike Williams, the the receiver out there in L.A. right now. If you want a guy that is just as smooth as the other side of the pillow, uh, Chris Olave, he's your guy. He's the one that you want to go out there and get. He's like six foot. He's not a big dude. He's like 180 pounds. Is he the one that they were comparing to Debo Samuel? No, that is Traylon Burks. He's the Arkansas wide receiver who's six foot, 225 pounds, and ran a 4.5 yesterday. He's like a running back that lines up at wide receiver. If you want a guy that is just a burner, St. Louis native Jameson Williams is the guy that you want to go out there and get. But he's got the, the torn ACL that he's dealing with right now. And then there's another guy that I really like, George Pickens. He's a 6'4", 215-pound receiver out of Georgia. Alex, he ran a 4'4 yesterday, and he is a guy that prior to this year was considered to be a legit first-round pick. He's probably going to end up going uh, top 15 because he's now recovered from his torn ACL as well. He's a hell of a player. There's a bunch of different types of players at the position in this year's draft. None of them probably, like, in the neighborhood of a Jamar Chase or like the top five yeah. wide receiver picks that we've seen in recent years. All of them, though, could go anywhere from like seventh overall to 50th overall wow. in basically any order. There's probably going to be seven to eight different guys that go in that. That's range. just this draft right now. Like I've, I've never been like I always have intrigue of a draft because that first round it's like, man, I really want to see what happens here. This draft I'm, I'm not even interested in. Like I'll find out who, who went where. 
but there's no like, oh, damn, this guy went to that team. It's interesting because this one isn't as interesting nationally. It's very interesting if you've got a favorite team. Like if you're, Unless your you're team, the Rams without a pick. Oh, fair. No, they never have picks. Like if you're a team that needs a receiver or a defensive end or an offensive tackle, this is a really good draft for your favorite team. Yeah. But if you're just a kind of an NFL fan, you like the league and you like watching for the star power, there's none of that in this year's class. Like Aiden Hutchinson and this Kayvon Thibodeau, the, the defensive end out of Oregon, those are the top names in the class. They're, none of the guys that are in this class would have gone in the top five last year. All of those guys would have gone over any of the players that are available in this year's class. Yeah. Kind yeah, of a it, dud, a dud of a draft. That's what uh, I'm saying. But yeah, I, I'm the wide receiver one is the interesting one. I mean, you brought it up with all the talent that there is. I don't know if there's been anything like this in our viewing experience. Like it always just felt like you've always had the star, like going back to Calvin Johnson. But I've never said like I think every team except for like a couple, like Jacksonville, Detroit, some of those bottom dwellers, every team has a elite level wide receiver. Even if they weren't very good, they have some. And sometimes even two. Look at Minnesota. They're an average team. They have two elite wide receivers. And I get it, they're not coming out of the draft, but they have two elite wide receivers. It's the best at the bit position we've probably seen. Would you say it's probably the second best overall position group in the NFL right now? I would put quarterback ahead of it because you just ha- kind of have to. Um, I think receiver is better right now than quarterback. Oh, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I would say that it is your your deepest position uh, in the NFL right now. Like, if you were do do this at home, make up a list of your top 10 wide receivers in the league right now. Your 10th best receiver will very likely be better at his position than the 10th best at any other position in the league right now. I think it is deeper. You can make an argument that there are other other positions where, like, the best player at his respective position is better than whoever you deem right now to be the best receiver. But I think you are deeper right now at receiver than you are in position. And like we've been saying, you could have seven or eight of these guys go in the first round this year, which is just adding even more to that depth. Speaking of the depth of the position, I think that's part of why one of the biggest storylines come out of the combine today is that Amari Cooper is expected to be released by the Dallas Cowboys. He was expected to make $20 million this year for the Cowboys, a massive cap hit for them. Guys, if you could plop him onto any team in the NFL going into next year, you could just sign him in free agency. Where do you think is the best fit? Where would you like to see Cooper play next year? T-Bone, you got one? I've got two. I I would like Miami would be one. I would love to see him go down there to be with Waddle and also Tua, assuming Tua is going to be the starting quarterback there. That's a good one. They try every opportunity to get rid of Tua. And then the other one for me is I wouldn't mind seeing him go to Baltimore with a healthy Lamar Jackson. I know Lamar had been pitching for Antonio Brown. With all the issues with him, why not go to someone that I get that Amari had some issues in Dallas, but I would look at him potentially going to Baltimore as well. He, Lamar needs an elite wideout. I, I think those are the two spots that I would, if I could put him anywhere, would be there. The one that comes to me, and is Julio Jones, is he still under contract or is he a free agent? I think he's got one more year. Let Does me check, he? though. Because I don't know what their their money situation looks like, but Tennessee would be really interesting. Are you loading up at wideout in well, I'm just thinking they have. Yeah, they, they've got another year under okay, contract. Okay, so they probably can't get that done. Yeah. No, the only reason I thought of it was because like they have the big, heavy, physical defensemen or receivers, but they don't have those those small, quick slot guys that I think Amari Cooper could be for him, and I think it could be beneficial. But T Bone had it there. Baltimore was the other one that came to mind. I mean, Baltimore would make the most sense um, because I think that offsets really well with 
what Lamar Jackson wanted. The problem is you just it's another small statured guy. I think you yep. need a bigger wide receiver for for uh, for Lamar Jackson. Here's a few different spots for you. Somebody mentioned Green Bay. They can't make it work money yeah. wise. They are totally strapped. They don't even for have cash. a quarterback right now. The Jaguars, I think, would be really interesting for him. That was one I thought of, too, because you could get I, him, maybe pair him with another wideout in this draft. But you need to go help your offensive line, of course. But I do like yeah. Jacksonville's potential fit. I like Jacksonville. The Browns, I think, would be an interesting spot for him. They need another receiver. I think the Bears are going to go heavy in yeah. on a receiver this offseason. They've got to get some more weapons if Justin Fields is going to work there. The Raiders have to be able to find somebody uh, to play there. I don't know if he would yeah, be willing to go back to Las Vegas with the Raiders, but the entire regime has changed since he was traded, so they would make a lot of sense. And I'm going to go ahead and say it, the Kansas City Chiefs. Okay, there it is. I, I think that there's a real chance that he ends up in Kansas City. In fact, if I was to put money on where is Amari Cooper playing next year, I would put my money right now I on the favorite. I thought you wanted OBJ. I thought you wanted OBJ. Now that he's available on free agency, I think he makes a lot more sense than Odell because of Odell's injury. I mean, Odell in, may in not Super Bowl. be available till the very end of the year. So how much is, is, are you really getting out of So what you're saying is the Chiefs can get him I think one of, of Juju Smith-Schuster or Amari Cooper will be on the Chiefs by the end of free agency. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're going to dive into lose. the junk drawer. But coming up next, Justin Masterson, former Major League Baseball pitcher. He was a player's rep back in 2012 during negotiations for the CBA. What has he made of some of the news that we are seeing? What does he make of the style of negotiator that Rob Manfred is? Well, it's Justin Masterson coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alex, you and I are not experts on the CBA negotiations. We never played baseball professionally. We haven't been involved with the players union or the ownership side, of course. So let's go ahead and get somebody on the line who has. That's Justin Masterson, former Major League Baseball pitcher. He played here back in 2014. He's joining us via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Justin, we appreciate the time, man. Appreciate you giving us a little bit of insight into this situation. How you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Uh, we're doing all right. We'd be better, Justin, as you know, here in St. Louis, this is supposed to be like the best time of the year. We get to get excited about the Cardinals. They should be uh, less than a month away now from opening day. And instead, uh, we're talking about CBTs and we're talking about what the minimum salaries are going to be and what the owners are going to give and what the players are going to give. Uh, wh what has this been like for you now on the outside looking in, uh, just trying to interpret what's going on with all of these CBA negotiations? Uh, I'll tell you this. It's, it's not surprising where it's come to because back in 2012, when I was sitting across from the table uh, from the owners uh, as a part of the union, hanging out with, with these guys who are way smarter than me, but you know, we're talking, talking to these owners and, and it was almost like even then, one, they don't get along with each other. So that makes it really difficult. They try and get us to be the ones to, like, negotiate for them. So we were supposed to, like, mediate for them to allow to do it. Uh, but even, even with that, it, it was like they've been building up to this point. Because, shoot, I mean, as much as they complain about not making money or this, that, and the other, you know, every single organization, the value of it is so much higher. And it's just – it's, it's really disappointing to me on the outside where I enjoy watching the game 
and and still have a bunch of buddies in there to know that it just seems like ownership doesn't really care about the fans or the players. And that's, that's really disheartening. And Justin, that's the part that has just gotten so frustrating for me because after all of these negotiations, that entire week that was spent in Jupiter where we were glued to our phones finding out if this would get done and it seemed like there was progress being made, the owner's comments afterwards were always, well, we're doing this for the betterment of the fans and we care about the fans. And it's like, if you cared about the fans, then I don't think these negotiations would be happening right now. No, I, I, I would agree totally. Now, again, I know... You know, in everything, in every negotiation, they're trying to be give and takes. Uh, but it just seems lately, you know, over the last couple bargainings, where ownership has really pushed to try and take, 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 and and not really much give. And and I know they're they're trying to make up because the MLBPA is is one of the greatest unions in the world and and has a lot of power to it. And a lot of that is because the players are do a really good job of staying together. You take care of the people who came before you, and you try and take care of the people who are coming up and put out a great thing for the fans to be able to watch. And you know, there's only been less than you know 18,000 people who have put on a Major League Baseball uniform within the history of the game. So it's, I don't know, it's just a really neat brotherhood to be a part of. But it is kind of sad to see it where you know, MLB complains so much about how you know, not many people are watching the game. We've got to make it quicker. We've got to do this, that, and the other. If that was really their belief, then there's no way that they would have any type of lockout right now, in my opinion. We're talking to Justin Masterson. He's former Major League Baseball pitcher. He was a player rep back in 2012 during the negotiations. And, Justin, you referenced that uh, a couple of minutes ago. And I I wanted to get back into your experience negotiating with Rob Manfred and negotiating with the ownership side of things. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Like, bring us into that room with you, if you could. What was it like sitting across from Rob Manfred and the owner's lead negotiators back in 2012? Well, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. In, in one sense, it's not as, like, uh, surreal as, like, I had built it up in my head because you're just in a, a conference room and you got some tables facing each other. And they're sitting behind their table, and we're sitting behind ours. Uh, you know, one of the neat things on the players' end is you will usually have, you know, 30, 40, 50 players who will be there uh, to one to give their opinion, but also just to to be a part to show the solidarity that's happening. Uh, but I, I'll tell you, I felt like Rob Manfred was better when he was just sitting at the table, not you know when he's trying to. I don't know. It makes me miss Bud Selig, Bud Selig a little bit as a commissioner. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know him great personally, but there's a lot of things I didn't like about him. But Rob Manfred as commissioner just, just doesn't bring the same to the table as when he was just that head lawyer, the head negotiator across the table. He, he did incredible things. He could work his magic and, and do some great things. We, we'd have some communication going on. Uh, now, I will say this. Even at that table – there was, I think, six or seven owners that were representing the rest of the clubs, and and they they had their own little infighting, whether it's between small market and big market, or just this personality doesn't really like that personality. I mean, there's a reason those guys have been so successful in all that they do, and and sometimes it can be a little alone at the top for them. Uh, but but like I alluded to before, they're they're sometimes looking for us as players to to negotiate for them 
to allow them to be able to to battle against each other. And that's just not the way it's meant to be. And, and that's interesting because one of the things that's come out in recent days, there was a report yesterday from The Athletic about how there's four owners that came out and said basically, hey, we don't even want to move the CBT up to $220 million. Like they were, they were basically refusing to do so. And if you get enough of them to, to be in that line, well, the owners can't do anything. Rob Manford can't do anything. Do you think one of his struggles as commissioner, Justin, has been his inability to – to form some sort of a consensus among the owners? Like, does he have a tough time wrangling those guys in the way that Bud Selig was able to back in the day? It definitely seems that way. Uh, I mean, from the get-go, even even the rumors, and I can't say this with any, you know, uh, assurance per se, but as things have played out, it seems to, to allude to that. And the fact that even from the get-go, the things that uh, – he kind of said to different owners just to become the commissioner, you know, he, he wasn't able to really uh, follow up on because of, of all the differences that are there. And, and maybe that's because his skill set is, is better because he's a, he's a lawyer by trade and, and not as much of a, I don't know if you want to say a schmoozer or whatnot that you may need to have to make people feel good about themselves in that type of capacity uh, that maybe Bud Seeley had a little bit more, but no, I, I it's, it's from the get-go of when he got there. It just seems like he hasn't been able to to bring together the owners uh, the way that they had been before. Justin, in these negotiations, you know we've we've heard about the the CBT threshold, and I think the one thing that the common denominator that's been coming from the players' mouths have been, look, we just want more competitiveness in baseball. We want to avoid those teams that just are there to be tanking. How much, as a player, did that bug you when you had those? And how important is that from this regime of players' perspective? Well, people like to win. And, and you're letting more teams be in the playoffs. Uh, just just over the years, more teams have been on and, and talked about it, too. And, and so you want, like, every time the, the trade deadline comes, it's like, are we going to do something or aren't we going to do something? And when when nothing happens, it's like, well, I believe in the people that we got. Well, shoot, I believe in the people that we got too, but it doesn't mean we couldn't have added somebody. But but there's no incentive. There's no you know extra collective to go and do it except for those who are willing to take risks. And and that's the idea. Everybody wants to have a chance. You know, it's the great thing about spring training and the you know the opening day, which has been you know taken away. But everyone, every single team thinks they have a chance. You know, then as it goes on, we we get to find out really who has that chance. But but it's so it's not just so that people can get played more, but so that you can be competitive. And I think that's what fans appreciate and love to go out and see a competitive team, give a chance where maybe we can make the playoffs and, and shoot, maybe go even further than that and, and see if we can actually make it to the World Series. Have one of those Cinderella runs or, or be a strong suit to do it. And from a player's perspective, following up with that, Justin, I mean, you've been a free agent before in baseball. Like, and you mentioned, you referenced the guys who are still friends of yours that are in this game. How irritating was that? And was that a big part of this as well, where all of these free agents are standing there without jobs because teams don't want to spend money? Well, it's it's, it's happened before. You know, there's there a time where, uh, what was it, the, you know, arbitration was at two years and then they they wanted to push it back to three years because they thought that more free agents they they put more money into the free agency well it turned out there was more players in the league in, in the history of the game that had three years or less 
because they utilize that uh, for their advantage to take to take those uh, lesser players. Because in the end, let's look at if you're running a business and and you have the opportunity to pay somebody less and maybe be successful or not, but you're not really like the outcome of your finances is not based really off of your success or lack thereof. Well, then you're going to take the lesser because you know you'll make some money. Uh, not saying anything against that player that they're going for, because it could be an absolutely great player. Uh, but if you're spending less money, that means you're making more money on the back end. The fans are still going to come and hang out. Your fans are being taken for granted when it comes to those type of things. And and those are the hard parts that you see because you're like, hey, just just come on. There's great guys out there who are far better talented or maybe more mature in their talent level uh, than some of these others, and that will give us a better chance to win. We're talking to Justin Masterson for just another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. Huge thanks to him for giving us so much of his time today. Uh, Justin, I I am curious. The one thing that I have wondered in these negotiations, and it's not going to happen this time around, maybe not even next time around, but in the future, I've been wondering, like, I understand why players have been so hesitant to go towards a salary cap in the past. Like, I think that was the right decision at one point in time to go there. But now with the CBT essentially serving for owners as a de facto cap on the top end, and you have so many teams, I think there's six teams right now that are spending less than what the lowest payroll was five years ago. So they're spending less and less every year. Payrolls have actually gone down while revenues are going up. In your mind, is it time for players to at least consider going towards a salary cap that would both have a ceiling right now like the CBT and also implementing a new salary floor? Is that something worth exploring for the players? Well, I'll tell you this. uh, If you still got him on the schedule, if you got Jeremy Guthrie coming in, he's way smarter than me and he'll be able (laughs) to talk talk a little bit better on something like that. But I'll say this, you know, the as I talked about how they've been kind of building up to something, you know, the idea of not of being against a salary cap, ownership has been working really hard to either push some sort of floor or some sort of cap, and and so we've we've kept the cap and try and push it up in order to not actually have you know um, you know a true type of thing, you know the CBT to have that so there's not actually this cap going on. But their goals, as it seems, has been to try and turn that into, hey, to make it look like just like you said it. Maybe it's time to look into something like that. And, and I don't know. I, I just don't think it is. I think once you go there, because when you're sitting at that table, you know, MLB has, you know, 70, 100 really smart, intelligent lawyers doing a lot of work for them. And, and we as a union have incredible lawyers, but we got, you know, 15 or 20 who, who are trying to combat with that same type of thing that uh, that ownership has. And so they, they've worked a lot of different angles that we're trying to figure out. And so it is. It's, it's a tough game, but at some point in time, somebody's going to make a decision, and hopefully it'll be the right one where everyone will feel happy about. Uh, but in the end, I just really hope the fans uh, will, <laughs> will be thought about and will be able to watch some baseball just like we want to do. Man, we're all on on board with that. That's for sure. I, hey, Justin, we appreciate the time as always, man. Hopefully, we'll talk with you again soon as Yachty and Wayno are entering their final year. Your for, uh, former teammates, and uh, fingers crossed, they'll be able to break that record this year for the most starts together by a battery mate. All the best to you, man, and hopefully, we'll talk to you soon about some actual baseball on the field. <laughs> Sounds great.
Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Justin. Absolutely. You got it. That's Justin Masterson joining us here on 101 ESPN. As he mentioned, we'll be joined by Jeremy Guthrie coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. He's down in Hawaii, so he's going to be joining us uh, from vacation down in Hawaii. Big thanks to Masterson for joining us and giving us so much time on the CBA. He was in those negotiations back in 2012 as a player rep. Coming up next, let's dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Let's dive into the junk drawer. Jeremy Guthrie joining us coming up here in about five minutes. We'll do this quickly. Tanner, what do you got for us today, my man? All right, guys, I got a world record that I know that we should try, and I know we won't be successful in it. Okay. Uh, I thought he was going to say we can't do, and I'm going to say uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we can't differ. do it. A, uh, Is it me beating you in a foot race? No, that you can't do. But a Polish guy set the world record uh, just yesterday, I believe, for stay, staying in a body of ice being submerged in ice for three hours and 28 minutes and you think we can do that i think we try why not uh because i don't want to lose part of my limbs well, from he frostbite didn't. he and how about this the record that he beat and he almost beat it by a whole another hour the record previously was two hours and 35 minutes and he almost oh, beat it by an entire hour God. that's stupid that's stupid you're gonna lose Probably three of your toes from frostbite. He, so he was in like a he's in a so he's a in glass like a tank. room essentially. Yeah. yeah, basically a fish tank for humans though, and they just pour they dumped in a bunch of ice around him, Alex, up to his neck, and he just stayed submerged in the ice for three and a half hours. I, don't I like can't cold. think of anything more miserable. Yeah, I don't like cold. Why would I like cold water? I don't take cold showers in the morning because I figure eh, it feels good. You don't it wake you up more. Are, are people who take cold showers? Oh in the yeah, morning? I have oh, a buddy. Really? I have a buddy throughout college. He woke up every morning and took like oh, a no. cold shower. No, 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 no. It, no. It's, it's he did exactly what T Bone said. They, he said it got him going in the morning. Nope, that sounds like, awful. I don't care if it gets me going in the morning. I'll do that sometimes if I like if I'm going on a run in the morning in the summer and it's so hot and I can't get my body to cool down before I like am trying to get ready for work. Well, yeah, sure, I'll get into a cold. Or when shower. you're out cutting the grass and it's hot out and you go inside. I get in the shower with cold water, but like th- throughout the longevity of that shower, it, get, it gets increasingly warmer. Yeah, no, no interest in this. This whatsoever. is a terrible idea, T Bone. You do it yourself. Yeah, I would love to see you do this. We've got a TikTok account, apparently. Yeah, you can TikTok new 101 this. ESPN TikTok account. Give it a follow on there. I know Ryder's trying to grow that thing a <laughs> little gonna bit. He's going to grow it like crazy. Um, speaking of growing, not a whole lot of that going on in this situation. Um, Tanner <laughs> can do this. Was, for the 101 TikTok account. Good. Coming up in 15 minutes Not or so. as good so, as mine yesterday. 65780 is the air comfort service X line. You give us four options. We will tell you which one's got to go. But Jeremy Guthrie, former MLB pitcher and MLB PA players rep back in 2012. He's a Stanford grad. He's unbelievably bright. He's going to try to explain to us what the heck is going on right now with the CBA. Jeremy Guthrie next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. 
always happy to catch up with one of my favorite players watching uh, for the Kansas City Royals. He is Jeremy Guthrie. He was a pitcher for them, Alex, when they went to back-to-back -back World Series. It went pretty well for the Royals back in the mid-2010s. <laughs> He's joining us now via the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Jeremy, it's great to hear from you, man. Thanks so much for joining us from Hawaii. We, we appreciate you taking some time with us. I don't How even know if today, I would have answered the phone in Hawaii. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. It's uh, just started pouring down rain out here, so I'm trying to get out of the rain. Don't want to get flooded out. <laughs> That's not what we would expect calling from Hawaii. Right. <laughs> um, Jeremy, we wanted to lean on your expertise today because we're trying to understand uh, what's going on with these back and forths between the players and the owners right now in these CBA negotiations. Uh, you've been a part of these. You were a player rep back in 2012. Uh, can you bring us into that room for a second? What was your experience like negotiating back and forth with the owners when you were in that role? Well, generally, it's just like trying to understand the way it was for us is we would have a, a group of players generally anywhere between maybe six and 12, along with uh, the majority of the staff of the Players Association. And we would sit across um, and negotiate with Rob and, uh, you know, who Rob was the lead negotiator at the time. It's now Dan Halem, who was also present. Uh, we never had, um, you know, I, I was never around to, to negotiate with Bud Selig. And then there would be, on occasion, there would be an owner, but not commonly. It was usually just the lawyers from, from, the, uh, from the league. And you would sit there and you would talk about issues and challenges, and they would share kind of their perspective. We would share ours, and then you'd go back um, and formulate an, a, a, an offer that would be sent over, and that would kind of trigger, um, you know, further conversations or responses. Generally, it was, it was cordial. You could see there was a lot of posturing and kind of, you know, preparation for what the offer was going to be one side or the other. Uh, there were times where it would get contentious and it was usually by a couple of comments or someone would say something to try to incite or try to put their foot down. I, I, the whole idea that, you know, a side will like stomp their foot or mark, you know, mark their territory and walk off. That's real. Uh, that happens. And I, I think, <laughs> I think generally, generally it's, it's posturing, but it certainly can, you know, slow down negotiations uh, when that happens. So uh, is that a good look? I'm trying to get the best kind of look into what it actually physically looks like when it's happening. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on with it, Jeremy, and we appreciate it. And the part that gets me, you know, you, you use that that kind of description of, you know, stomping the foot in certain circumstances like that, and it sounds like the CBT is the massive issue that the owners are stomping their feet on. Can you try and explain this a little bit more? Because BK and I have just been so confused as to why the owners are so hesitant with the CBT. Well, the CBT is as close to a salary cap that the league has been able to come up with. And I believe the CBT came into effect either after the strike in 95 or maybe even in 2002, which was the year I was drafted, and they came up with an agreement last minute um, to be able to continue to play baseball. And so I was, you know, I was particularly benefited by good negotiations in 02, and which is why I took an interest in being a part of it uh, once I got into the league um, in 04 is because had we not negotiated well and come up with a deal, my career would have not started on time, and who knows you know, what kind of other factors would have come in. Um, but the CBT, the league is very wise, right? They have very, very great lawyers. The, the union has great lawyers as well, but they found a way 
to essentially institute a, a salary cap. And that's evidenced by the fact that there's a CBT with penalties both for the first, second, and third offenses, and it progressively gets much, much worse. And if you look back in the last uh, 10 or so years, I think the number of teams that have exceeded the threshold for spending. So for the, you know, for the fan that doesn't maybe understand it, if a team goes over a certain amount in salary in a year, they pay a tax on the amount that goes over. And it's hefty. I think it's maybe 35 or 40%. And then it, can, and it increases if you do it consecutive years or three years in a row, which I'm not sure if that's been done three years in a row. If it has, it's only been by one or two teams. And so what it does, the evidence is showing that teams don't go over it. And when they do, they certainly don't go over it twice. And the amount of teams that go over it is minimal. Maybe, you know, less than five, I think, are the ones that actually exceed the, the threshold for spending. And so from the player's perspective, what we've seen is this is very much a salary cap. That's the way it's acting. And so the owners have gotten what they've always wanted, what the fighting was for the majority you know, of the 70s or 80s was for a salary cap. And they've accomplished more or less what they want. And so that's why they're so firm in keeping it. And players obviously have recognized that this has not worked out the way that they anticipated. And so they're willing to, to fight for, for freedom of you know, negotiation and just free market. And so that's where there's a big big rift and um and challenge between the two sides jeremy my my concern is and i'm i'm a player's guy I, i'm i'm pro union on this my, my concern would be the cbt threshold is such a big thing for the owners that you're not going to be able to find uh, a way to get at least 23 different owners to agree to uh, to boosting this is there a way in your mind that instead of boosting that CBT, maybe you keep that where the owners are at currently, do you think there's a way to backdoor some sort of a floor into these negotiations? I know that essentially becomes a cap, and I get that, and that is something that players have been against for, for decades now, as you mentioned. But right now, one of the biggest issues for the players is you've got these teams that are spending nothing. They, they've actually gone down in their spending over the last six years. Is there a way that that could be implemented into the CBA that would make sense for the players in your mind? Yeah, I'm sure there is. Of course, that could be a benefit to the game. And when you look at it from the players' perspective, genuinely, they, they, I do feel players want the best for the game. They want the, that's why you hear the narrative of competition and spending because the result is when you don't spend, you don't win, essentially, right? That's what we've seen. Um, and that's, there's great, some great organizations that have found a formula to do it well, that's not to say the Tampas and the Oaklands and, and many others. But gen- generally, when you don't spend and you start tanking, there's become, it seems like there's an incentive to lose and spend less has increased. So a floor would help that. But at the end of the day, long term, I think the argument that you continue to see is the game itself, the revenue produced in the game has increased many, many more times than the compensation for players. You see teams sell for hundreds of millions of dollars and then resell for billions of dollars. And there's been evidence, very clear evidence, that salaries have not gone anywhere near that. In fact, salaries have actually depressed other than the big guys. The big guys, you're seeing bigger per-year salaries out there breaking records. But, of course, it's one, two, maybe even three guys. And so it would, it would help with the competition side. It would not help long-term, though, with what the players ultimately are fighting for, which is free market and being compensated for 
their talents on the field in the short window that they have to earn money. Um, I think that's something really important to, to consider as well. As you look at the perspective right now, what are, what are the players sacrificing? What are the teams sacrificing? And ultimately what are the fans sacrificing? Which would be the first question. And we know the fans are losing everything. They have nothing to gain whatsoever in these negotiations, not a single thing. Their love for the game decreases, their appreciation for it uh, decreases. We're going to lose fans because of this. Um, There's no winners on the fan side. The player's side, they're ultimately fighting for a cause, and so their hope is that they'll eventually get some of that and earn some of those things they're fighting for to help today, but also to help future generations. A unique thing is if 60% of the league makes league minimum, you know $500,000 dollars $600,000 is a good chunk of money, but to earn that for five or six years before you get kicked out of the league, it really doesn't make a difference in your life. You're going to have to go out and work the rest of your life. And so players right now are giving up all their salaries. You know, Some guys, there's a fraction at the top that, of course, are making multi-millions and already made hundreds of millions of dollars, and to them it's maybe not as much of a financial sacrifice long-term. But other players, that's their whole incentive, that's their whole money. And so when you think about the teams, if they talk about how they don't make money in baseball, which, you know, that's another topic. <laughs> in reality, you look at it and say, well, who's suffering the most of this? Who actually has the greatest leverage? And it's clear to see who has the leverage. Most owners have other businesses. Their livelihood is not baseball. They do it because they, they love the game or they have an interest in owning a professional team. But there's some big losers. The fans at the top of the list, the players in the organization. So I think the answer to your question is long-term, it could help to have a floor, but it doesn't resolve the ultimate issue that will continue to persist and cause problems if it's not addressed. Jeremy, the final one from me, and with the knowledge of the CBA negotiations from what you've been through in the past and then from what you've seen either going back and forth with these currently, what do you think it's going to take to get out of this until we see baseball again? I don't know. I'm I'm so far removed from it at this point, six years, and um, and there hasn't been a lot of you know publicity about it, at least on ESPN networks. Uh, I haven't seen a bunch on that, which is telling in of itself, right? That there's not a lot of coverage there for it. Um, I, I don't know what it's going to take. I, I know I, I, my belief, being deep down inside, is that the owners have all the leverage. They're you know if, if what they say is true about they don't make money in baseball. Or, or by playing baseball and playing salaries, in essence, they're probably doing better off financially, financially, not having games. I mean, I think that's a realistic question to consider. Like, if, if they say they lose and then they don't play and they're not paying anybody, are they actually doing better? It's possible. Um, I think, obviously, long-term, the value of the team, the value of the game, which is way more important than the value of a dollar, is impacted. But I think that's a really tough battle to fight. Um Owners and clubs go on with all their day-to-day business stuff outside of the game, which is obviously to own a team, you have to have millions and hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, and that's coming from somewhere. Um, the players don't have any revenue coming in, and so they'll be, they'll be squeezed, and they'll be pressured, and there'll be a lot of family pressure, I think, and personal pressure as well as the fans because I know, I know deep down inside, as bad as it looks from the outside, players and the teams – do have an interest in the fans, and it just doesn't look like that in these circumstances. It looks as bad as anything can look to the fan, and they, we just, they just want to get back to where it's a game and they love the game. Um, it's become very much a business inside of the game, and it's being navigated. And I think anyone that has a job or is in any industry 
if they if they look if you could look at it and could have a perspective there, eliminate the fact that it is a game, but say what is this job and their livelihood, I think there would be, you know, you would see it a little bit differently. But nonetheless, I don't know what's going to have to take. It's going to have to take big concessions from one side or the other. Hopefully, both. That's the ultimate goal. That's what bargaining is: is give and take. That's what life and relationships are: is give and take. It shouldn't be one side gets everything they want, and the other side gets nothing. And so it's going to take some, some humility on both ends to get it done, if I had to put it into one simple phrase. Jeremy, the final thing that I had for you, we've seen a lot in recent days and really over the last few years, honestly, given everything that's taken place in Major League Baseball, some of the comments that he's made, some of the uh, the stains, honestly, on the sport that have taken place under his uh, his reign as as commissioner, what is Rob Manfred like in these negotiations? Is is he having did he have trouble when you were in the room wrangling together these owners to gain a consensus? And what do you view his role in this current situation? Well, his role is extremely important. He is the conduit from the owners. And, and I think in my negotiations, which were two um, that I was a part of, I think I was sat with owners maybe once or twice. Sitting with owners was not a common thing. And if so, it was like one or two. Um, and obviously that's probably fractionally similar to what the players represent too. If the players bring 40 guys, then that's also probably a similar fraction to one or two owners. Right? It feels like a lot more people, but if there's 750 or 60 players in the big leagues, it's a small fraction as well. Um, but negotiating, what did you say? What is it like to sit across from him? And, yeah, uh, what is he like as a negotiator? And ha- in your mind, when you were negotiating with him, did you feel like he had a good handle for the other owners? Because that seems to be one thing yeah. that is, it, it, I, I'm having a tough time understanding is, I, I don't know that the owners all seem to be on the same page here. And how much of that is is the job of the commissioner to make sure that they are actually on the same page? I, I got a sense for that as well. I, I know how hard it is on the player's side. To, to gain consensus and to gain understanding. And that was some challenges we faced back in, um, you know, back in previous negotiations. There's such a diverse crowd of players, and there is a diverse crowd of owners as well. I would say it's, it's a challenging, challenging job. Uh, when we criticize commissioners of leagues, it's easy to target them and say, hey, they're terrible at what they do. They're ruining the game. And, and certainly they have a major responsibility to that, but it is challenging. I got the sense overall that it was a tough task for him, and at times it was looked like he had it under control, and other times it looked more challenging. And I think that could be said the same way for Don Fear on our side, uh, the late Michael Weiner, and Tony. I think sometimes it looks like it's clear and there's a good driving force, there's momentum and consensus, and other times it doesn't. So I don't think, I don't think it's a knock on Rob. Um, as a person, I enjoy Rob um, as a person. And I think as he, as he navigates his job, he has a really tough task. And there are certainly times I think it's easy. It's easy for people to point out his mistakes. I think it's, I think it's equally important to point out things that have gone well uh, under his tenure. But, uh, yes, there are times where it's uncertain and you're, you're not quite sure the whole story is clear and, and communicated well enough to all sides and that's that's just the nature of it, right unless you get all 30 owners in the in the room together it's going to be challenging to have that conversation and you know successful individuals you know in any field have their way of doing things they have their opinions so imagine trying to get 30 of the most powerful business people you can find 
in in this country and then getting them all to agree on one thing. It's not easy. And I think that's clearly what's happened in this industry and in other industries as well. Hey, Jeremy, we sincerely appreciate you taking so much of your time today to be able to join us here on BK and Ferrario. We wish you all the best. And uh, hopefully next time we're able to talk with you or we're talking about real baseball on the field and we can break down some of the players that you enjoy watching nowadays. Hey, I appreciate it. I, I am by no means uh, the guy or the expert in any of this. And, um, you know, I, I'm a fan now, just like the majority of, of those who are in the game of baseball. Most people are fans. And I find myself in that same bucket um, with maybe just a better understanding of both the owners and the players' side. So hopefully something today made some kind of sense. But if not, then uh, just say, you know what, that's just a former washed-up player that has no idea what he's talking about. It wouldn't hurt my feelings. <laughs> it's probably sure. true. You no, know, <laughs> you, you, you helped us gain a better understanding of this all, man. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks, Absolutely. Jeremy. That's Jeremy, Rutherford, or excuse me, Jeremy Guthrie joining us here on 101 ESPN, former Major League Baseball pitcher, one of my favorite players for the Royals back in 2014-2015. Uh, a really bright guy, as you could probably hear uh, through that interview. Does a lot of good for the community as well. I think the biggest thing that I took from that interview is like when you talk to the guys that are intimately involved within these negotiations, Alex, they understand the gravity of what's taking place. They understand that, yes, like this looks really bad and they know it and, and they can feel that. And you could sense from Jeremy, he's like, hey, listen, like the players know that this is going to hurt the fans and they don't want it to, but yeah. there's no other way to get this stuff done than to have this. Um, I just hope that as you heard from him, like eventually, uh, these two sides, somebody's going to have to give. And we all can see it from the outside looking in who has the leverage. It's the owners. The owners are losing out on less early in the season than the players are. So are the players really willing to hold this thing out for the long haul to be able to get what they want for it to really start hurting the owners? I, I don't know, man. I, I always sit, tend to lean towards the answer is no because you got more of them to be able to get on one side than you do of the owners where there's only 30 of them. But it's it's a it's a tough situation to be in from either side and god i just hope we get to play baseball soon like uh, at yeah. the end of the day that's what this is all about and i just hope that we get to get there yeah and i'm sure they're thinking that as well and it's just really interesting to get from a player's perspective and i love the way he answered when i asked him you know how are you how do you think this ends and he said i don't know because you're right you got two sides that don't want to budge the players have spoken so much of you know we're standing together in this and we're putting our feet down and we're going to try and fight back with this and it seems like they're going to stick it out as long as possible yeah it makes sense that most of the players are going to have to cave but you know part of me also wonders through all of this and and I think I saw this on the text on as well how much of this is public perception of we want to look like we won this and that's the thing I, I don't know and, and eventually the players are going to have to ask themselves what's our what's our priority what's like our if, end game if here? we could get one thing one thing added to the the agreement that we didn't get in the last best offer in the in the world words of their uh, lead negotiators. What is it that we want? And, and that's that's what they're ultimately going to have to determine. Yeah. EJ Raddick of NHL Network joining us coming up here in about 15 minutes or so. Coming up next, a quick edition of One's Gotta Go here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. So early.
earlier today, we talked a little bit about the trade deadline, and we're going to be talking more about this coming up here in just a moment with EJ Raddick, senior NHL reporter for the NHL Network. We'll get to one's got to go. We went a little long with Jeremy Guthrie. We'll, we'll get to that coming up here in about 10, 15 minutes or so after we talk with EJ Raddick. I put up a poll on Twitter, Alex, and let me put this out on the front end. I understand that each of these options are A, unlikely, and B, would require significant capital to make happen. But if the Blues were going to go all in, let's talk about which scenario we would be most interested in, okay? Let's say this is going to cost you probably a first, third, and maybe either a prospect or another pick. That's probably what this would require to, to make any of these work in terms of the money and also acquiring these players. Option one. You get Mark Giordano and you get uh, Cal Clutterbuck, the, the guy that you love for the fourth line. Oh, I never said I loved him. He was just an option. Yeah, good player. Option two, Ben Sherratt and Clutterbuck. Option Sounds three. Sounds like you're obsessed with Clutterbuck now. Option three, I just don't know which other fourth liners are going to become available. <laughs> Justin Braun and Claude Giroux. Option four, just Jacob Chikrin. Which one of those four options are you most interested, Alex? Giordano and Clutterbuck, Sherratt and Clutterbuck, Braun and Giroux, or just Chikrin? Oh, man, I, I think I, for the longevity, I'd be looking at Jacob Chikram. But if I'm making this trade because I'm looking at this season right now, it would be Giroux and Braun because I think it, it makes you better defensively with depth and it makes you better, no question, offensively with Claude Giroux at the top and Ivan Barbashev being pushed down. I, I, you know which one I love, which is Braun and Clutterbuck Giroux. Clutterbuck and Sherratt. I, I actually think that's the one that I might vote for here. I think for this season, you can make a pretty strong case that that's the one that for the playoffs put you in the best spot. I, I, if you wanted to add some grit to this team, and I know there's a whole lot of Blues fans that would love to see that added to this squad, that's probably the one that makes the most sense. Again, though, understanding that's unlikely and it would cost a whole hell of a lot of, a lot to get done. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line right now to be joined by EJ Raddick, the senior reporter for the NHL Network. You can find him on Twitter at EJ Raddick underscore NHL. EJ, we always appreciate the time, man. Let's bring you in on the conversation we were just having about the trade deadline as we're now just a few weeks away. Uh, what are you hearing in terms of the discussions that are taking place right now or are things heating up in your mind? Yeah, they have to be because the deadline is March 21st. So <laughs> they absolutely are. I think because teams are so up against it cap-wise. There's, I think there's 16 or 17 teams that are right now in LTR, LTIR space, which is, I would think, that's probably as many as we've ever seen at one time. And I think that's part and partial because of where we're at in, with the flat cap over the last couple of years. Um, you know, I get the sense that the teams that are wanting to buy are, are trying to wait and kind of drag it out as best they can because they want as low a cap responsibility as possible. And, then, of course, things get prorated as with each passing day of the season until we get to those final 40 days. And so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's definitely there's interest out there. There's some teams. I mean, I think the New York Rangers are in a really fascinating spot because, they have about $6 million in cap space, uh, you know, when you look at it. But that that space um, expands because everything is prorated. And if they don't make a move before the 21st of March, on that day, they can literally add roughly $30 million in contracts because everything is prorated down. So I'll be curious to see what Chris Drury does and uh, with the Rangers. And there's some other teams that have – that kind of room, Nashville, Minnesota, but you know, that's in a window for this year on expiring deals. 
that you could acquire. And then, of course, next year things start over and new contracts kick in. But, uh, yeah, so things are things are heating up. But I think because of the cap being so tight, you're seeing uh, kind of uh, a delayed reaction here to making moves. EJ with the Blues, I mean, it's it's been well documented that this team does not have much cap space to wiggle around with when it comes to the trade deadline. But you know, you've seen the history of Doug Armstrong as a general manager in the helm of the St. Louis Blues. I mean, he strikes you as a guy that's going to be creative and aggressive come March 21st, doesn't he? Yeah, I think, you know, I was. it's funny because I just saw Doug last night. I saw him earlier in the week because the Blues are in the New York area. He's been, he was traveling ahead of that. Uh, he was at the uh, Vancouver Devils game on Monday, and he was at the, uh, he was at the uh, Vancouver Islanders game last night. So that's not, you know, it's, it's one of those things people say, wow, guys are at games and scouts are at games. That's what they do. I mean, they're always they're at games. They're watching games this time of year. Obviously, there might be more intrigue to it, and they might have other, you know, different agendas at looking at different players. But generally speaking, I don't always put a ton into when a guy is at a game because that is their job to be at the game and know what's going on around the league and different teams. So, uh, yeah, I, I do expect Doug will look at it. I mean, for me, when I look at it, I think the Blues one through twelve to their forward group are as strong as anybody in the league. I think uh, their goaltenders, obviously, they have. Who's so playing very well, and they have uh, Biddington, who's been their cup-winning goaltender and the guy that's on a long-term deal, and who's played better of late. So that's good news. I think the area that they need to address really is, uh, you know, on the blue line, if they could get a little bigger, a little stronger, a little more experienced back there to help them uh, moving forward in a cup run. That's the area that I think they would try to address. But, you know, those guys are not easy to find, and you have to determine if you're – you know, if you're willing to give up an asset that you value in terms of a high pick or maybe a good young player to uh, to make a kick at it this year. EJ, the guy that we've talked the most about, I would say, over the last few weeks, so just to, to replace uh, whoever ends up being up there at the, the, the left side defenseman with Colton Pareko, is Ben Sherratt. He, he's a a big, sturdy defenseman that has had success in the playoffs in the past is he, in your mind, the best fit here in St. Louis, or is there somebody else that immediately comes to mind when you're thinking of who could play with Colton Pareko on that top pair? Well, I, I like Sherratt, and I think he fits for – he's a big, strong guy. And he's on an expiring contract, which is good. Uh, he's 3.5 against the cap. Obviously, you prorate that over time, so then you got to start doing the math on it. But uh, – he was had a deep playoff run last year, so there's that experience. Um, but just big, strong, kind of hard to play against. Uh, you know, he, all these guys. There's no, you're not talking about getting perfect players. He's going to make mistakes along the way as well. That's going to happen. But I, I, I just think that that's, you know, when St. Louis won the Cup, as you guys know, I mean, they were big and strong and sturdy on the blue line. I mean, they were just hard to play against. Guys, it wasn't that they were necessarily mean. It was just that they were long and lanky and. You had guys like Edmondson and Petrangelo and and Boomeister and I mean and to add to Pareko and, and and the other guys they had back there. So and you know Bortuzzo. I mean they just that was kind of uh, you know part of their mo and and what made them successful that year. And I think with the changes they've made to their team, uh, you know they're still I think pretty good on defense, but they're just not as big and strong and hard to play against. And, and so that's. 
you know, a guy like Ben Sherrod, I think, would be a really, you know, nice fit. I think there's going to be a lot of teams that are looking for that type of player to add to the mix. But uh, I do think, you know, especially being a left side guy, I think he'd be a really good fit for to kind of push the Blues back into that, uh, you know, having those another one of those guys that is hard to play against, just long and lanky and tough to deal with in the D zone. EJ, the Blues have been playing really well since they've returned out of that Olympic and All-Star break. Uh, I don't know if, if you would label it this way, but for me, like Colorado's that best team in the West, and then I think it's Calgary and St. Louis. Do you view the Blues that way? And if not, how far off are they from being up there with Colorado? No, I think that you're right. I think Colorado is the best team, and I, I've talked to some executives in the Western Conference who, who, you know, they're all kind of in agreement. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that Colorado's going to win because people have felt Colorado was really good for a couple of years now, but they're really strong. They're having a terrific season. They haven't had too many uh, dents in the armor. I mean, they had another – they had a loss last night to Arizona. Arizona's kind of caught them twice now, but, you know, uh, but this is a team. They've got 11 regulation losses in 55 games this year and a 764 points percentage and a plus 64 on the season, uh, which I think is the best in the league. So this is a really good, strong team. And so I think there is a little bit of a, there is a little room in between them and, you know, in Calgary and St. Louis, which are kind of next. Uh, Vegas is really struggling right now. They've had a lot of injury issues there. Eichel is back, but Stone is out. The goaltending is, you know, Leonard came back, but he's been dealing with maybe not a hundred percent right now. So, uh, you know, they're kind of, they're falling out of the picture a little bit, but I, I, you know, I think it is Colorado and then I think it is St. Louis and Calgary. I agree with that. I like, you know, if it stays the same as it is now guys in Minnesota and St. Louis were to meet in the first round, I like that matchup for the blues, not to say that Minnesota is not a really good team. I think they've been really impressive this year, but it seems like St. Louis has had Minnesota's number over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, you don't have to look back that far. You go to the, Winter Classic, and St. Louis uh, went in there and did a number on the, the Wild in that game. So the question will be is if they can get through that series then and, and Colorado is waiting for them there, how do they how do they deal with Colorado? And that will be the challenge, and that's why I'm sure they're trying to try to go out and add some help on, the, on their blue line to be a little bit more competitive, you know, for all the series, but certainly if they were to meet Colorado at some point in the first couple rounds. EJ, the final question that I've got for you pertains to uh, Claude Giroux, a guy that we've had a lot of conversations yeah. about because uh, there have been some connection between him and uh, the Blues because he, he apparently wants to play for a legitimate contender if possible. He also has a lot of say in the matter because he has the no-movement clause, so he can kind of determine his own fate depending on where he would like to go. EJ, what are you hearing on his potential future with Philadelphia and what do you think the value is going to be in terms of a trade for him, considering he does hold so much of the decision-making in his own hands with that no-move clause? Yeah, I think right now, I think what is happening is that he would like to get to his 1,000th game in Philly, uh, which is going to be, you know, if everything stays as is and he remains healthy and uh, we don't have any issues. Uh, I think that's sometime uh, around St. Patrick's Day, somewhere in there. And after that, I think, uh, you know, he's likely to be moved. Uh, there's always the possibility to decide that he doesn't want to do that, but his contract is expiring. I don't know if, what, the, what the situation is for the Flyers, if they would consider re-signing him or not. They could still move him and then try to re-sign him after. That's still an open door, and it would give 
the Flyers an opportunity to get some value back. Uh, you know, I think he would go to St. Louis. I think, you know, the, the, the word on the street sort of is that Colorado, St. Louis, Minnesota are the team. I thought he might be a really good fit in Boston because they haven't really replaced David Krejci there, and I think that would make sense. But he may be one of these guys that would just rather, if he's going to go somewhere else as a rental, maybe go to the West and not have to, you know, be so close to Philly. But um, I, I – you know, I look at the Blues, as I mentioned earlier, guys. I just think they're so good. I mean, the guys are slotted well, and, uh, you know, that, that group of forwards they have there, I don't see that as a real need for them. Now, he's a really good player, and he gives you another, uh, you know, another option for Craig Berube and company up front. But, like, I, I just don't see that as a need. And when I look at their forward group, it's like, where do you wedge them in? And I'm sure you could do it. I mean, you know, you could move Barbashev back and move him in somewhere maybe with that with Shannon Cairo because he can play the wing, he can play center. He's a real valuable piece. But you talked about limited cap room and, and what it might take. So uh, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. But when I look at it and I look at their roster, I look and I say, hey, we got you got to figure out a way to help that defense be a little bit better. And that would be my main focus. He's EJ Raddick. Find him over on the NHL Network. Give him a follow on Twitter. Eat at EJ Raddick, H-R-A-D-E-K underscore NHL. EJ, we always appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll talk with you again soon. All right, you got it. Absolutely. That's EJ Raddick here on 101 ESPN. So let's start with this. Claude Giroux, if he wants to get to his 1,000th game with Philly, he needs six more games to get there. That would take place on March 17th, which lines up basically exactly with when the trade deadline would take place. So that's that's not going to mess anything up timing wise. If you're looking at what his salary is, that that's a tough part. He's going to make eight million dollars this year in terms of his cap hit. If Philadelphia ate half of that, you're down to four million dollars. If you end up getting another team to take on 50% of that, you're down to $2 million. You don't even need to do that second part if you're able to send Philly Scandella in return. You've got enough money right then and there to be able to make it happen. Scandella going to them, they eat 50% of the deal. You've got Claude Giroux on your roster now. Boom, bada, boom, bada, bang. you got Claude Giroux, great thing. Do you agree with his assessment, though, that eh, you don't really need to do it, so why would you do it? No, I don't. I don't. I, and I've stuck to this. I understand where everyone's coming from, and mind you, everyone that has said this is a lot smarter about hockey than I am, but this is a guy who notoriously wins 60% of his face-offs. This is a guy who has been a plus 60-point scorer throughout his career. This is a guy who makes your team better. And yeah, you know what? Jamming him into an already full team of forwards, not going to be easy. Somebody's going to have to accept a lesser role and be okay with it. But we've seen it before, and the guys that you'd be asking to accept that lesser role have also seen it before and seen what the outcome is if you win a game. Do I like the idea of Nico Mikola and Colton Pareko playing against Colorado in a best-of-seven series? Of course not. I would love to get another defenseman to play up there. But if you're telling me I can either have Claude Giroux, who is one of the top forwards available, top players available at the trade deadline, I'm taking the shot at that because... Puck possession means less time for the other team in the offensive zone, which is always a good thing. So, no, I I don't see how people look at it as, say, there's no fit to bring in a Claude Giroux. I don't know how you can look at the lines that are Saad, O'Reilly, Perron, Booch, Thomas, Tarasenko, Giroux, Shin, Kairou, 
and then a fourth line of Bozak, Barbashev, and Sunquist, and say to yourself, nope, that's not good. Yep. I, I, I think the best offense in some way, or the best defense, excuse me, in so many different situations is just an excellent offense. You know what Claude Giroux is really good at? Cycling the puck. He's really good with the puck possession numbers. Even on a really crappy team right now, he still has good puck possession yep. numbers. Look at his look at his faceoff wins. The other thing, man, I think he gives you Vladimir Tarasenko insurance. Like he is not the same player as Vladimir Tarasenko, and I would never suggest otherwise. But if Vladdy really does want to get traded this offseason still, you could potentially allocate some, not all, but some of his cap hit and redirect that to Claude Giroux if he ends up liking it here in St. Louis. Or he, he is he is a Craig Berube style of player. He well, makes yeah, he a lot of sense. He makes a lot of sense for Berube. So I just, I don't know how you can look at this situation and say to yourself, ah, no, we don't really need that, so you don't want it. Yeah. They don't need him. They no. don't. But if you can go out there and get him and he wants to be here, the cost is not going to be as exorbitant as some would suggest because it's the Nolan Arenado situation where he's dictating these are the two or three teams that I would go to. Let's say the Wilds aren't in on it because they're not ready to go all in on this team just yet. And it's between the, the Blues and the Avs, and the Avs prioritize something else. Well, then what are you going to do if you're Philly? You've got to take what the Blues are willing to give you. You're yeah. between a rock and a hard place. I just I, – I... To be able to acquire a Claude Giroux makes your team better. I mean, like it or not, it makes your team better. Would I lo- would my first preference be a defenseman to play with Pareko? Absolutely. But if you're telling me the next best thing is Claude Giroux, I'm taking that because my team just went from great to one of the best. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll do a quick one, got to go, and, cro- and uh, finish things up here on BK and Ferrario next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. anything from today's show be sure to check out the podcast page 101espn.com the free 101 espn app it is all presented by dobbs tire and auto centers we went long with jeremy Guthrie. we went long with ej raddick we had a lot of fun on the show today so if you missed any of those conversations be sure to check them out for alex ferrario and tanner hendricks and i'm brandon kiley we've been broadcasting live from the enb granite studios be Back with you guys on Monday at 11. The fast lane coming up next. What one person described their neighbor as a quote loud sexual tyrannosaurus. Oh my god! And I'm like, oh. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.